Hey there, this is Cole with some programming notes. This is the first of two episodes about The Stand, covering up through about chapter 45 or so. Uh, we're going to be talking about the rest of the book uh, during the next episode in about two weeks. And then after that, we are beginning our coverage of Wizard and Glass. So if you're going to be getting either any of the books that we've talked about during this off season or uh, wizard and glass or the other dark tower books, consider doing it through the Amazon links at duckfeed.tv slash tip jar. We get a small cut of the proceeds from whatever you buy there. It's like a, like an affiliate kind of thing. That's an easy way to support us. Uh, the other way is patreon.com slash duckfeed TV. Go there, check out the details. That is a way to support this effort more directly. Now, Let's dig this stand. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King uh, and the related works. Um, my name is Cole Ross and I'm your host and today I'm joined by Autumn Greer. Delighted as always. And by Evan Jones Thorne. Hello, hello. And this week we are beginning our discussion of The Stand, which is a very early Stephen King novel, actually. I didn't read I in my head, I didn't think this was, you know, like super, super late, but this is kind of a magnum opus outside of things like, you know, It or things like, uh, you know, The Dark Tower itself. It was like his fourth book, his fifth book. I always forget that, and that's this was, insane. <laughs> this is the one that was designed to be like his, um, uh, what do you call it, like his Lord of the Rings, right? Like his Americana great Tolkien work. Yeah, he said that, but he also is kind of ambivalent about how successful he was at doing that. But you can definitely see it as like this travelogue kind of, kind of story with a Sauron figure, right? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Um, I, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, like, we we should really begin this the way we usually begin these things by 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 throwing it to the other to the other hosts. Like, uh, what is your experience with the book, Autumn? Uh, like, uh, what, what, what's your history with this one? I guess you could say that I have two histories with this book. We talked about how a lot of people that you've had on the show have read books when they were probably a little bit too young to be reading them. <laughs> I tried to read this book so young that I realized that I shouldn't be reading it. Oh boy. Like I got to the part in the first, <laughs> yeah, the, the first probably maybe I was probably maybe 10 or 11 years old and it was the biggest, thickest book from my parents' book club that was on the bookshelf. And I went and I pulled it out and, you know, we get maybe 10 pages in and we have dead people with like black tube necks and, um, you know, a, a, a dead child. I mean, it, it was pretty gross. And I was like, you know, I put it back on the shelf. I walked it back and I probably pulled out like Charlotte's Web because that rat was really cool. You know, <laughs> he's voiced by Paul Lind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, probably a few years later, after I got Stephen King fever, I went back and read it. And I, I have to say, this is probably the most influential Stephen King book for me. I, I picked my college major in milking cows because I was like, well, you got to have a practical skill for when end times come. I mean, <laughs> I guess realistically, I probably should have turned into a prepper or something, but I just didn't want to 
you know, sit around and jerk off about how much pemmican and how many bullets I had in my house, you right, know, so right. yeah, you, you milking didn't cows with the next best thing. You didn't want to have to rotate your stock like, oh, we're having beans <laughs> today because they're about to go off. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, so hands down, this is probably time. my favorite Stephen King book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, there's, there's obviously some problems, some unevenness here and there, but overall, hands down, this is the best for me. Yeah, I I have a lot of uh, it. Really rings a bell for me when you talk about like, oh, I just wanted I just wanted to pick the biggest the thickest thing that I could, you know, uh, because I'm because I'm young and that is that is the <laughs> that's the value that I perceive in books to a certain extent. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly how Harold picked his books as well. Oh, indubitably. Um, <laughs> Evan, same question for you. What's your uh, what's your what's your history with this? Man, I had a very different. Uh experience with this book uh, I, I actually didn't read this until I want to say until I was about halfway through the Dark Tower and I just kind of needed a breather after probably Wizard and Glass if I had to guess um, and so I, I went for a nice relaxing jaunt through the stand oh yeah you know fuck me I guess <laughs> just, just, um, a, just a little moosh boost uh, and a yeah, teeth. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had friends in in high school who just raved about this book, and I was really excited. I didn't know anything at all about it except for the cover. <laughs> and I I really would like to talk about the cover a little bit because my experience with this book has as much to do with the picture on the cover as with anything inside of it. So you're because... you're referring to the classic version that has the the two hooded figures. Uh, scythe fighting in the desert. In, in a, yeah, like a a very dramatic, uh, like sword fight almost. And one of one of them's a bird person. And, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like a like a Black Plague era doctor, right? Like that's that's what they wore back then. Yeah, yeah, the big beak masks. Uh, yeah. According, um, but uh. Yeah, so I I went in not knowing anything except for that picture, and I was like, I was expecting like, maybe not high fantasy, but I was expecting at least a sword fight. <laughs> and you didn't expect it to be is, like straight up there modern is day. Really? No, no, not at all. And like, even if it was, I think I expected it to be more in line with, um, I guess, like Rose Matter, where there's it's like it takes place in modern day, but then there's other elements to it as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like some like anachronistic stuff going on. I, I did not expect it to be like a mid eighties post apocalyptic, uh, opposite of a sword fight book. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, because one, one notable feature of this book is that there is no scene anywhere in it that even remotely resembles the cover art. Mm -hmm. uh, at least when you're like 15 years old and not super great with uh, metaphor and symbolism and stuff. Right, right. And they've only they've only gotten worse. Like there's one cover that's just a dude like with a gritted face biting down on a bullet, which doesn't doesn't make any sense even thematically. Um, and I think a no. more, like a more recent one has like it's just like a it's it's a street with a bunch of bodies in the road, which feels a little bit a little bit closer. Yeah, that's. That's at least in the ballpark. Yeah. 
<laughs> so despite the fact that there were no, there that there were no cool desert sword fights, did you like what you found inside? Oh yeah, it's great. Okay, cool. <laughs> um yeah. my history with this, I you know, like, like a lot of Stephen King, I came to this very late. Uh this is the first Stephen King book that I read outside of on writing. And I chose it specifically because in on writing he talks about, um, you know, he has he has a couple of specific stories about things that he's written, but he talks about like a difficult decision that he had to make in the story um, to get himself unstuck. You know, after everybody had kind of settled down where they end up settling down, he, he felt like he wrote himself into a corner and he talks about, you know, doing something and killing off all these major characters um, in order to like thin everything down <laughs> to uh to you know to, to to get to the final part and i you know when i was looking at and thinking about starting stephen king there was a little bit of that you know what autumn talked about like oh well just give me the <laughs> give me the thickest book you got um but also like i just wanted to see how that how that was put into place now i'd be lying if i said that this wasn't also related to the fact that fallout new vegas was coming out um, and I knew that part of this had to do with, you know, um, part, part of the sand had to do with crucifying people outside of Vegas in the desert, which also happens in that. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to read this and have this nice little synergy. But yeah, this is, this is the first Stephen King that I read. Then I immediately went, went into the dark tower and then immediately read it. <laughs> so fantastic. Which, which version yeah. did both of you read when you read it for the first time? Expanded. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Evan? I honestly don't remember. I, I want to say it was probably the original version just because it was uh, on my dad's bookshelf and had the original cover. Yeah. Um, it was like a great big hardbound. Um, and and I'm, I, I've been trying to remember which version I read at that point, and I, I got nothing. Yeah. Do you remember the kid? I I don't specifically from the first time I read it. Okay. <laughs> that's that's yeah, kind I, of the, know... the, the leaves of three let it be, right? Like, you remember yeah. the kid? Yep. The old edition you didn't read. <laughs> like, right? Yep. I didn't get there. It, it only works <laughs> My for heart specific. Was in the right place. It only works for specific dialects on the upper peninsula of Michigan. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Leaves of three read yeah, some I... more? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to say that I I read the original edition because I'm 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 going through my uh, my trusty Wikipedia synopsis again, and it I I do not I I feel like the the scene where Stu uh, find the kid's remains and call him the Wolfman mm-hmm. I I feel like I would remember that if I'd read that as a teenager I feel like that would have stuck with me somehow. And, and, and Autumn, you read the. Oh, I I read them them both. I probably read the 1990s version a lot more. That's probably the one that I've read, you know, 30 times or something like that. Mm-hmm. One, I was going to say one piece of trivia that came up in a few different things when I was, you know, doing my doing my homework. So I would sound like I knew what I would talk, was talking about on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, was that one of the reasons that there are two versions? Is because Doubleday physically was not able to print much more than an 800 page book because of the way they did their bindings, glue versus cloth. Hmm. They could not do it like a 1200 page book. So that's what drove a lot of the editing changes. Yeah. In the um, in the opening essay of the expanded version, 
king writes and says, yeah, they, they gave me, it was like an economics choice. They told me, okay, if the book is going to be any far, you know, any bigger than this, we have to charge more for it. And that's more than the market can bear. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny how that, how that, how that works. Uh, I should give some basics on the book just so we, just so we know where we're proceeding from, because we're getting into a little bit of this. Uh, It was published in 1978 and the expanded updated version that we're talking about came out in 1990. Um, the summaries that I'm providing here uh, are going to come from the expanded and updated version. I don't even know if it's possible um, to get a hold of the old version now. Um, and also the like it, like by by trivia, there was a version that they put out in the mid '80s that updated some of the cultural references, but didn't restore any of the any of the missed material. Um, and this is a book about a super flu that wipes out the majority of the population and kind of sets the stage for this battle between good and evil that, that 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 happens afterward um it's a very christian story like it is very much god and the devil uh that are that, that are at work here you know the villain is referred to by the uh you know by <laughs> by the new pope i guess uh you know as satan's imp um and so that's a, a little bit of the um, cost of admission is getting into this and not finding that hokey that expanded edition and what king took out of it like he did the editing himself like he rather than let somebody else do surgery on his baby you know this massive book that he was really proud of he went back in and and performed the cuts um and so you know it wasn't really a matter of like somebody else looking at what king did and making it a more focused thing you know like all of this both versions reflect his intention in 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 both of these cases Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I had asked this in an email and I don't, uh, I don't know if we'll have time to really get into it too much, but have either of you read the short story that this is based on? No. Are you referring to night surf, which is a very strange, it is a very strange name. It's also, a an interesting, it's an interesting story. It's not my favorite, uh, it's it's very early in his career, but it's it's interesting as kind of a a peripheral artifact to this massive book. Right, right. When you say early, like this is nineteen sixty nine is when yeah. he is when he initially wrote and published this, and that is also a story about uh, you know a super flu. Um, I don't think it's it, it's not clear what what it did to the population. Uh, you know, as compared as compared to this, but it relates to this group of teenagers going kind of all Lord of the Flies, you know, trying to arrange like sacrifices and stuff to, uh, you know, to, to, to cure themselves or to ward off. Um, any yeah. Flu. Yeah. And it's it, it's it's one of those. It, it makes a lot more sense after you read The Stand, which is strange because it was written before. So when it came out, you could not have put it in that kind of context. Right, right. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. I was just curious if either of you had read it, but if if not there's not a whole lot to talk about really. No, I unfortunately I hadn't and that's that, that that's a little bit of an oversight on my, on my part. And all of the research that I've done leading up to this, you know, I never actually knew there was a story that it was based off of. Um Yeah. I know. I found it years years after I read it. Yeah. Um I yeah. 
Autumn, did you did did, did you uh, get in on that? Um, I actually have not read that story either. Um, it, it's interesting to know because I, after Evan had emailed about it, I'd looked it up and kind of read a summary, which I guess is the next best thing to a short story, you know, tri- <laughs> trimmed much. off an extra 5,000 words, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I thought it was interesting that um, he was, I, I guess maybe continuity wise, it fits. I mean, it could just be happening at the same time that our protagonists in the stand are doing stuff. There's these kids on this beach um, getting wild. Yeah. You know, just you're just getting a little rowdy, <laughs> ignoring the call and just I, setting up their own struggle. Yeah. 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 Uh, hey, we don't have gas money. We're not going to Las Vegas. Come on. <laughs> just hang out here. Yeah. There are plenty of I, people I was sacrificed. Su- surprised. I, yeah. I, I read a couple little lines in an interview, and I didn't really find a source on this, but apparently Stephen King was writing um, a, a fictionalized version of the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Did you guys see information on this? I guess he thought that um, Patty Hearst kidnapping and the way that she was kind of turned and started, you know, like carrying a weapon and robbing banks along with the the SLA. He thought that only a novelist could, you know, kind of figure out the motivations behind that. And Mm -hmm. he was kind of getting to a dead end on it. Uh, And apparently there's another incident, the Dugway incident, where some army nerve gas was released and killed a whole bunch of sheep. Mm-hmm. So while he had hit wider, writer's block with his Patty Hearst kidnapping book, he kind of came up with a concept for the stand um, and broke his writer's block on that side. Yeah, um, but that, the, the the Patty Hearst incident specifically provided um, inspiration for Randall Flagg uh, because of the, one of the leaders of the uh, of the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation oh. Army. Um, DeFreeze, I think is his last name. Like he was fixated on a, like one of the only known photos of DeFreeze, like during one of the bank robberies where, you know, like he, he was just kind of this figure whose face was entirely cast in shadow. And that is, um, you know, a, a, a huge, a huge thing about, you know, Randall flag in this book is the, those descriptions of his appearance in the nightmare. Uh, but also his portrayal in this book as like this, political dissident because we do see little moments where that character is involved in like kkk rallies i think they actually mentioned the name donald DeFries, right i believe so yeah um and that that's not the only character who's actually based on other stuff like um, the kid the you know the person that we talked about before um that is a character who king has come out and said like yeah that's that is um based on starkweather the daniel starkweather like a, a a teenage spree killer from the uh uh, like the mid fifties, like late fifties, I think it's uh, like he served as like the, the the basis for a bunch of spree killing movies, like Natural Born Killers and stuff like that. So he he cribbed from real life monsters a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. So this is a massive, massive book, and we're not going to cover we're not going to cover in the detail that you're used to. Like it would be a whole season of the show to do that and that is not necessary i think to cover the themes that relate to the tower um however the biggest feature here and the most memorable thing at least for me you know let me know if you disagree is the characters um and we're going to spend the first episode here uh kind of talking about them as they you know react to the superflu plague and then start journeying toward uh their destinations and i have untangled them you know especially in the first book of this um, called uh, called Captain Trips. Um, everything kind of jumps around, uh, you know, to different parties and different locations. I've just taken that and put them put them linear. 
so we're not spending time, you know, shifting, shifting gears. Um, that aside, we should talk about the real meat of this. How about that miniseries? I actually still haven't watched it. No? No. I, I haven't seen very much of the Stephen King adaptation canon catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen uh, the Tommyknockers. I haven't seen – I think I, I've, I've seen The Shining and 1408. And that might be literally it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I would say definitely um, at least fix it um, and watch like the first part of the of, of the miniseries. It's like it's eight hours. So that's a lot like it was aired over the course of four days, you know, and obviously that, you know, that, that that's a better way to do it than putting out like one two hour movie and saying, well, let's hope this gets all of it. Um but <laughs> it's got uh it's it's got a hell of a cast. You have uh you have Gary Sinise, you have uh, you have Rob Lowe, um uh Matt Frewer plays Trash Can Man. <laughs> yeah, so you have Max Headroom wandering around huh. the desert. <laughs> all all right. right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Autumn, have you uh do, do you have affection for the miniseries? Oh, I love the miniseries. I mean we've got Kareem Abdul Jabbar as the guy the 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 soothsayer that rings that bell and says that everyone's going to die. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you have have Kathy Bates as the real. Oh yeah. As the, the, the radio person. Uh huh. Yeah. I I think that the real standout for me in the mini series is whatever guy they had, um, control that crow, that crow trainer brought his a game to the mini series. That crow is landing everywhere. He's messing (laughs) up gates. I mean, that, that, that's a smart ass crow. Yeah, it is, it is a very good crow. That 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 is some real um that that, that is either a very smart crow or it's some uh, like blue velvet level mechanical bird action they got going on. <laughs> yeah, um, it's real cheesy. Uh, the miniseries is you know because it's you know made for TV and like some of the gnarlier aspects of the story you know you, you can't do that on television. Um, proceed to get slimed. Um, but, um, I think that it's interesting to see those visions of the characters. Um, and it is a good and digestible way to at least get the broad strokes of the story. However, they do, you know, combine different characters and eliminate the other ones entirely, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, don't take it as like the canonical version of this. It's not a, it's not a distillation. It is more of like a, uh, you know, like a, like a vertical slice almost. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about what this has to do with the tower um, and with the dark tower. Uh, this was written and published before even the first uh, dark tower story, I think was what w- was put out, you know, the first chapter of, uh, the, of the gunslinger. So a lot of the connections are kind of retcon um, and they updated and added more um, in the uh, 1990s version as he, you know, started getting a better idea of where he wanted the tower to go. Um, like the eyes of the dragon, this gives some more perspective on, uh, King's kind of er antagonist, uh, Randall flag. Um, and this story is actually where flag debuted, um, outside of some vague references to the idea, um, of a dark man that had popped up like in a poem that he wrote, um, in a diner several years earlier, um, et cetera. And, um, while Walter was originally supposed to be his own character, Wizard and Glass 
and kind of the books that came afterward retcon him into being, you know, just kind of this other manifestation of flag serving the Crimson King, you know, the, the, the kind of Satan figure, um, in, uh, in, in, in the, in the books, in the books themselves. Um, so let's talk about flag and the way he's presented here, because it's really hard. I don't know. I was about to say, it's really hard not to like him, but like, he's not a likable character one way. It's hard not to be engaged with the way that he is presented. You know, we talked a little bit about some of the name dropping that they did around his character. I, I think that that really serves to give him a lot of gravitas. Like he feels like a worthy foe, even though he's presented in just a plain humanoid aspect and even has some weird myopic, you know, like can't see some stuff that's going around him maybe a little bit later in the book. He still feels like such a worthy adversary. <laughs> it's really funny how toward the end of this book, you have a cult of personality that is based around uh, a strong man who fetishizes, at least nominally fetishizes order uh, that collapses around him because he has uh, uh, surrounded himself with uh, underlings that are selected more for loyalty than ability. Um, and he himself is wildly unstable and just completely spins out of control at the slightest provocation. Uh, there is no no way in which I'd like the, that does that hasn't happened to us here in the past two years. Um, but it's funny to it's funny to see. Yeah, that. I, I I cannot think of a modern parallel. No, no, you're right. No. Yeah, so this is this is yeah. definitely a, <laughs> a, a a real whole cloth work of fiction. Uh, <laughs> uh, sure, sure is great that there's no uh, no no parallels we can draw no, between uh, our reality and this book. No, nothing to worry about, guys. Um, Maybe maybe we can finish this and then we can do the dead zone, right? Just clear everything up. Oh, geez. It's dark. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, has, has, has Trump killed the dog? Um, yeah. I mean, at this point, it's a matter of time, right? <laughs> I didn't mean to take it there. Like, I mean, Man, obviously, obviously I did, but just it, I, it's yeah. listening. I just to... said that, and now I really hope I'm wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you have a note here, Evan, about how like these feel like separate characters to you, the walking dude versus the man in black. Can you they can, always can... have? Yeah. yeah. I, I I guess that that what it really comes down to is that Randall flag in the stand seems human. Like he seems like a person, like a like a an actual th that's the best way I can think to describe it. And the way that I've always kind of thought about it is um, he he probably was at at one point a human and the stand in my mind is closer to when he stopped being one than the dark tower is right the the scene that that really keeps kind of sticking out to me is i i, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves but there's a scene at the very end of the book right before uh flag makes his exit um and, and he's terrified of what's happening mm -hmm. and you, th the man in black would not be terrified of anything except for the crimson king and maybe roland sometimes mm -hmm. like everything that happens in this book feels like it it's it's huge to humanity but it feels like it would all be kind of like small potatoes passing his time to somebody like the man in black that we know from the dark tower right 
Yeah, that that is a good point. Like, oh, small potatoes just kind of occupying your time. There's no sense of where this actually takes place if there is kind of like any kind of continuity or ontology to this, uh, you know, single figure. Like, the you know, does this take place before, you know, (laughs) before when we see him in the tower? Um, Does this take place before the eyes of the dragon? Like, did he fuck up Earth by being a political dissident before going over, you know, to Delane? And uh, starting that up, I like if if that is the case, all you can all you can read is that he is incredibly busy, you know, going around and messing everything up. There's a little bit of a clue because he, I believe, in Wizarding Glass, takes credit for the release of the of the superflu. So I'm like, yeah, I just every once in a while I go into I go into uh, one of these levels of the tower and set that up just to have some fun. I thought, you know, like is, is, is kind of how it's implied, but yeah, like yeah. it's, it's hard to, it's hard to have like, um, a notion of growth of his character across these continuities. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I think that I've just always kind of filled in the gaps in my own mind. Yeah. Head canon. Yeah. I felt pretty comfortable rearranging some of the facts around it in my head. You know, when you look at um, uh, when you look at, say, when we look read the eyes of the dragon, mm-hmm. that character flag had been there for hundreds of years, kind of changing his persona. Yeah. And I think you could probably argue with it since we see some just waking up, just getting into my car type of scenes with the flag and this mm-hmm. that he's just starting those cycles. Yeah. So maybe we're just not, um, we've got groggy flag and we had full on flag when he was with Roland in the desert or, or Walter, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And in, in the eyes of the dragon, he was we, mixing up dragon sand and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, this, our flag just hasn't had his morning coffee yet. He doesn't even know who he is yet until he's has his coffee. No, no. And he's definitely, you know, he, he definitely is in the process of waking up in this. Like I, I'm comfortable with both of these characters being the same because they are both, um outsiders not like in the like oh you're you're not from around here are you but like literally on the outside looking in and that you know i, I that's not original stephen king has talked about that and you know you used it used it to you know to describe him you know this this version of that character is still a sorcerer he is still somebody who you know um knows how to manipulate all kinds of power um and you get what he wants by setting the world into chaos, right? Um, yeah. That to me is kind of the through line between all of those, how he reacts to any particular one. Like, yeah, it's, you know, the, there are moments later on in the Dark Tower series where he is he, he is a couple of steps behind, which is strange for him. Um, but that lines up also with what we see with Flag here in this. Yeah, I, I don't have any issue with the idea of them being the same character. I've just kind of like they've always seemed like like we're we're seeing like they're we're seeing the same character but at different points in his evolution. Yeah, yeah, and also yeah. you know different points in what King had decided he wants this character to be. Like there is a version of this right. character in the um, fable in the Wind Through the Keyhole, which I think is one of the best versions of this. You know, and he wrote that thirty years after. Yeah, and I I still haven't read that yet. I've been uh, saving it for the cast. Oh damn, that's so good. <laughs> I am I am really excited about it. I've I've yeah. been deliberately putting it off so that I can be uh, 
first read excited when we when we do that episode yeah oh gosh there there there's somebody on this cast who has more dark tower to read i'm jealous yeah (laughs) that's that is something that has been uh by very much by design yeah um uh so there are a couple of other reasons why this is in a you know a series about the dark tower um at the beginning of wizard and glass you know so um in a couple of weeks here uh the cotet is going to um visit this world you know they're going to pass through a thinny you know one of these holes in reality and come to what they find out is a different level of the tower you know an an alternate history where the plague has you know released they're going to see notes they're going to see notes about captain trips uh they're going to be in kansas and see kind of the, the 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 desolation um and they're also going to see some references you know to the crimson king who doesn't pop up here aside from just regular lord of the rings kind of imagery related to a large red eye and the there's the the black stones with the red flaw yes has has always seemed to me like a uh, like a crimson king thing yeah it's like a calling card <laughs> yeah that's that's a better word than thing yeah <laughs> you know, if if you're gonna be a like a all powerful force for evil, you got to get your merch right. Yeah, you got to get your branding on point. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are other kind of ideas that are present here, um, like the way that magic manifests, um, and also kind of this idea of highways and hiding, which I think is just a phrase that Stephen King really likes, but actually turns into a thing later on in the Dark Tower series. Um, and you know, those are just kind of these dark nether passageways across america that randall flag wanders you know to get from place to place uh we should really get into uh the details of the story itself and we're going to follow the story and the progression of the flu kind of the backbone of this by talking about the um um both the people who developed the flu and uh, a character named Stu redmond um, uh, who is introduced in a, uh, in, 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 in a pretty, pretty fun way. Uh, but we got to start with the actual releasing of the, uh, of the, of, of, the, of the virus. Uh, and this is introduced in the, uh, in the expanded version. Like it's not actually present. You don't get to see what actually happens, uh, with this, but, uh, the novel opens up with this guard, Charles Campion, uh, escaping from this military facility, like waking his wife and daughter up saying we need to get out of here as quickly and possible you know, as quickly as possible because uh yeah the door <laughs> the door should have locked but it didn't you know we we talked at the beginning of how this was uh, about how this is the eternal struggle between good and evil and the characters on the front i guess they could have had those two dudes with swords one of them could have just been a faulty lock mechanism that's the whole problem is yeah. our yeah. government under underinvested in locking mechanisms for gates that that's again the cause of 99.6 percent of the world died because somebody <laughs> tried to cheap it out on a lock yep because Man. of some no bid contract that some fat cat awarded to his crony those damn <laughs> <Exactly>. fat cats <laughs> yeah. he, he was in the pocket of big lock <laughs> oh damn you you're not the master <laughs> of locks not the master of locks at all <laughs> <laughs> This is uh, terrifying. 
because like he doesn't exactly, you know, it, it is only referred to in, in some like oblique kind of fashions. You know, she, she says, Oh damn, has it happened? You know, I was worried about this, how she knows what they were working on there. I have no idea. Uh, loose lip sink sips campion sink ships campion. Um, but yeah, like when he's deciding, like, do they, if they have time to, uh, to pack their clothes, like he licks his finger and tests the wind to see if it's to see if it's headed their way. Not understanding that he and most of the rest of the world is already dead. The, the campion escape scene is, is great. I, I do want to put a note in for podcast listeners. If you're a 10 year old girl listening to this podcast, you're probably not liking this part of the book. It's a little stressful for you, but just power through. You're going to love it. <laughs> just power through. You're going to stop in 50 pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it, it's a lot, but they, you know, they get out like he, he is the one person who escaped. Um, and he gets from California, like Southern California, all the way to East Texas. And this is kind of described as, you know, the, you know, the, the, the inciting incident, like, oh, this is where they found him. It's where he landed. This is where the plague started from. He was infecting people all along the way. Like by the time his car rolls up to the, you know, by, to the gas station in Arnett, Texas, um, you know, they're dying. You know, his, his daughter and wife are already dead. He is delirious. He has all these symptoms. You know, his, his respiratory system is mostly phlegm at that point. And it's, it's kind of described. We have Stu who says, oh, if only I didn't tell, if only I didn't turn off the pumps, none of this would have happened. No, no, the, the, the horse is already out the barn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about Stu. Um, Stu's kind of the Aragorn of the story. If we're taking the, uh, the Lord of the Rings kind of, uh, kind of attack for this, uh, kind of a good old boy, um, not really doing an awful lot. I think he works at a, he's on furlough from a, from a calculator factory uh, in, in, in Arnett, Texas. I think Arnett's a, um, a, a fictional town, but he spends his days just kind of, you know, drinking and putting up with his friends down at the, down at the gas station. I would just like to take a moment to appreciate uh, the description of Aragorn as a good old boy. <laughs> well, you know, King of whatever the ranger <laughs> yeah, I, I had never thought of that before, but it's spot on. Yeah. Well, I just mean like the <laughs> Stu is the closest thing that we have. He's to honorable. Just, right. Yeah. He's got his head on straight. Like he's a real practical, you know, kind of kind of straight shooter kind of person. There's very little in the way of like moral failing to him. And what we see is, you know, him, him trying to wrestle with like the new responsibility that, 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 that is put on him. Not so much, um, as other characters like Larry, uh, but 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 still, he he is a central figure in this. And also, he carries that sweet sword named Anduril, right? Yep, beheading people. Am I am I am I off base with the Aragorn comparison? No, I don't think. Oh, so Oh no, at all. I I think that that's perfect. Yeah, I, I I don't have a lot of those a lot of those comparisons. I definitely know who Frodo is, and I definitely know who Smeagol is. Um, <laughs> but um, oh please. Please tell us who Frodo is. Oh, Tom. Yeah. Tom. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I don't know if I would have come up with that, but now that you say it, I feel pretty slow for not coming up with it. Yeah. And uh, and 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 got got M O O N. That spells Hobbit. <laughs> yep. And uh, and 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 Gollum slash Meagle is trashy. Trash can man. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's an original thought. Looks like Maybe we got a... ourselves a. A fellowship going uh, i i think we do 
<laughs> uh, so what do you guys think of Stu um, and kind of his his initial characterization and kind of the way he deals with some of these early struggles? Because like right away, he is whisked off to different plague centers and stuff, and he he is not cooperating with anybody, really. I can't really blame him. No. <laughs> He senses a cover up. He 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 knows he he knows that something is wrong. I, I was going to say that. Of course, we 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 like Stu. We respect Stu. Stu's always a little bit of like a cipher for me. Like I I can't always tell. I, I, it's hard for me to empathize sometimes with the character. I like him so much. I love how practically is how crafty he is. The way that he works the staff at the the CDC facility. I mean he he's he's so smart. He's so cool. But I, I have a <laughs> difficult time kind of relating to him the way I'm able to with some of the other characters, maybe Fran or Harold or Larry, some of those characters. He's yeah. an enigma for me. Yeah. He's an, he's an enigma because of how straightforward he is. <laughs> exactly. I, uh, yeah. And, and then, then I'm not being, I'm not being smart there, but like, yeah, he's kind of the, he was the yeah. football star in high school. You know, he turned down a scholarship so he could take care of his brother, you know, after his parents died, like, just a bunch of stuff like that. Like he has all of these earmarks of like a true American hero, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like I alluded to, you know, the plague starts spreading in, 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 in our net and he's, you know, everybody is uh, kind of quarantined here, you know, like eventually blockades start popping up. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually he, you know, Stu is whisked away. Um, we learned a little bit more by some of these cutaways to the Project Blue kind of, you know, uh, center itself, you know, back where can't, uh, can't be an escape from. We have a character who I can I cannot not see as, um, oh, my gosh, I can't unsee him as, what is that character's name? Ed Harris is who plays him in the uh, in, in, in the miniseries. Uh, Starkey, kind of the commander who's in charge of that, yes. like, you know, popping downers. You know, he's taking blues and he is watching all of these corpses, you know, down in the labs, rot on these security cameras as people give him, as people give him these uh, status reports, right? That's really what shines in this book are the little moments like that where he's thinking about the guy with his face in the bowl of soup or when he's thinking about his his daughter and his worthless son-in-law, th things like that. The characterization in this, I mean, some of the plot points, I mean, really you're using dreams as the driving like force in the story. I mean, yeah. that's kind of a cop-out when it comes to, to plotting. But the characterizations are so crystal clear. I mean, every character feels so real. Mm -hmm. it just No matter if they're maybe a two-page character, yeah. you know? You know, d down, to, down to him, you know, before he ultimately kills himself, like, you know, reciting Yeats from memory because his, I think it was his sister said, if you're going to go into the, if you're going to go into the army, you're going to have to read the second coming by Yeats. You know, that is the one that like, oh, you know, the center cannot hold nothing gold. Can, wait, no, nothing gold can say it's a different thing. Fuck. Um, <laughs> but like the, his deterior, deterioration is he doesn't sleep, but he continues popping tranquilizers is, 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 is a, is a real thing. And also like a lot of the stuff in Starkey's story and a, a good deal of the book in general, uh, is, is relayed, uh, like almost like epistolary, um, in terms of, you know, it is pulled from documents, it's pulled from diaries, it's pulled from, uh, in this case, like reports or computer readouts 
about the you know the 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 status of the plague in the in the center itself and kind of these you know event readouts that 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 come in in Starkey you just get the sense that like they are under, they are under quarantine like he is like there's nothing that he can do besides watch the world fall down around him as you know at this point as one of the few people who actually knows what's going on the good news about all of this um is we're pulling funding from the CDC, so this story has actually never been less likely to happen <laughs> than it is right now. I mean, we we probably were working on a super flu bug in the late 90s, but now we've kind of ranged some of that funding back. We're going for booms, not sniffles, and <laughs> I, I think we might be safe from a, at least a genetically engineered super flu, a regular mutation, just random maybe, but oh, I, yeah. I think we're, we're looking pretty good. Yeah, Pro- Project Blue is, is is being sunset, but Project Purell is still happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's worth uh, kind of dwelling on because, like, the thing that ends up killing most of the population is a government project. You know, it is Project Red, White, and Blue. Uh, boy, that was cheesy. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And that's one of the things that. <laughs> That's one of the things that makes this a little bit of a stretch. Like it is a good story about, you know, it, it is a good story for paranoia, but it defies it defies suspension of disbelief to think that there would be either this massive conspiracy or massive cover up and to have everybody working working on, you know, like kind of off of the same page to keep this from getting like completely out of control, even though even though it ultimately the, does. The what- the one thing that is very plausible, though, is that once it got too far out of control, that we would totally send people to China and Russia and South America to break their vials and transmit it everywhere so nobody would know it was us. Mutually assured destruction, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. By the time anybody figures out, we're all dead as fuck because, like, over the course of 19 days, there you go. Like, just it's done. It's gone. Um not only do we send people over to do the mutually assured destruction thing, but like we get one of these chapters that I know is added in the expanded edition, but adds so much the uh, the and so on chapter describing that salesman getting out of our net and then just describing the transmission and like racking up. You can you can picture like in the TV version of this or the update, just kind of like number of people infected being displayed in the bottom corner, um, you know, as like, oh, he stopped at a diner and infected 13 people. You know, who then got on a plane and spread it to the city, this the city, and this city. Like one single chapter is a germaphobe's nightmare. Um, yeah. the, the line that's always stuck with me is the one where the the girl is worried that her boyfriend's giving her the clap, but it turns out he's giving her something much worse. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it is a very good line. Yeah, but, yeah, but 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 it's like like it is just one of these little intermissions that tells you exactly how bad everything is. Not for everybody though, because in uh, first Atlanta and then they move them to Stovington after they uh, after at the after the people start dying Stovington, Vermont, they establish that hey, Stu is immune. Um, you know there there is a reason why he has no symptoms. Um, I believe he's like the way this works is they're carriers, but they are not symptomatic. Um, and they determined that like <sighs> this works by rapidly mutating, um, so that the the immune system can't actually get uh, get a hold of it. But the people who are kind of chosen to survive are able to adapt to it. Um, and so yeah, like the like we have this first inkling of this very small group of people. It's like point six percent of the population that will um, 
that will, you know, outlive this, right? Uh, meanwhile, we get these, uh, <laughs> we get more of these scenes of the government quarantining these cities. You know, Stu is watching the news and, you know, kind of like noticing that nobody is covering the flu. Or if they are, they're talking about it like there are vaccines coming. Uh, you know, he gets the suspicion watching the staff, you know, how like eventually there are no more doctors coming in for him. It's all like military type people. You know, he's he's noticing the uh, the, the the newscasters on the uh, on the <laughs> on the TV, like casting glances off as they are being handed new, you know, new copy to read on uh, this very like, you know, again, paranoia inducing sequence. The, the use of the news media scenes throughout this section of the book are just fantastic. I mean, there is a slow creeping dread that you start to feel as footage be, is being pulled out and, you know, just seeing how a media takeover or blackout kind of happens at the government's direction and implementation, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, to the point where the media starts rebelling, you know, um, you have the radio DJ who decides to actually tell the truth saying like, Hey, the free press has been co-opted by the government. You know, all the stuff we have been reading to you has been, you know, has been a lie. And you know that because you've seen the streets, you know, what's going on. Um, you know, and that person is killed on the air for that happening. Um, and kind of heartbreakingly, like an, another call is accepted saying like, Hey, I'm super happy you're doing what you're doing. Like continue fighting the fight. <laughs> um, yeah. That's... yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and this is also about the time that, uh, you know, like once it starts getting out there that, uh, Starkey, our good friend, our Yeats quoting person, decides to venture into into the Project Blue facility because he has had enough of watching this person who died face down in their Campbell's chunky sirloin soup um, that, in the in the mess that, hall. That detail has always just yeah. I I, I don't know <laughs> what it is, but that's that's one of the scenes that has always like given me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> Well, the consistency of the chunky sirloin, you know, I don't know that I've had that particular yeah. one, but any any kind of chunky ch chunky soup like that, they describe it like congealing in his in, in, in his eyebrows. And we have yeah. to assume it's been several days, so the smell has to be unimaginable, you know. Yeah, was... just, just that that like unnecessary level of banal specificity. <laughs> Yeah, I just love how outraged Starkey is. Like that—that that is no way for a man to die. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you talk about the soup. For me, it's that line where the that that dying guy in the the center where Stu is says, "Come down and eat chicken with me, beautiful." It's uh. so dark. That's the line that sticks with me. I don't, oh. I don't ever want someone that's dying to grab at me and say, "Come eat chicken with me, beautiful." That's that's freaky. <laughs> You know, I think that that's a reasonable thing to want or yeah. or not want. Yeah, don't don't feel don't <laughs> you know? feel bad asking for that. You're not putting out too many people. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm just trying to walk down the street, and somebody's accosting me, trying to eat fried chicken with me while they're dying. Yeah, it's no big deal. Come on. Just trying to live my life. <laughs> so, who Autumn? Who is it that says that? Like, is that what Elder says when he comes to kill Stu? 
once once Stu gets out and he's trying to Elder comes to to kill him and once Stu is kind of running through the facility I can't remember if this is on the way before he runs into Elder or if this is right after Elder when he's just trying to get out of the building okay yeah it, because I mean because everybody could be everybody's part of del- his, his escape right everybody is delirious delirious with the flu including the person who is you know sent to uh, sent to kill him uh, this is terrifying to me actually like. A lot of Stu's story up to this point has actually been pretty scary from like a a practical standpoint. Like, oh, you can just be whisked away and disappeared and held in this government facility and not be told what's going on. Like that is, you know, it's maybe a little bit outlandish, but like it's rooted in a form of reality. Um, when you get to the point where this is just like a dead facility, you are underground and there is a person whose face you cannot see. And all you can tell is that they are here with a gun and you are disposable. Um, that standoff and then ultimately him running through this maze trying to find his way out as this person who refuses to die is shouting deliriously at you and firing is ridiculously grim. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I would I would say, yeah. <laughs> like the, 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 that is one of the things that is that has stuck with me you know the the most about this is Stu's kind of nightmarish escape and the fact that he is he is marked by this he carries this with him for a long time i i think Stu and then lloyd in the prison are probably the two characters that we see that have had it the worst when it comes to their um their, their plague origin story yeah, they're like they're, they're hardships. If you assume that everybody who has a parent lost their parent, like that eventually becomes like, oh, what's so special? Um, Larry, I know you ain't no you ain't no nice guy. You didn't go through an awful lot to get where you got to. Uh, Stu's had it real rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But <laughs> but eventually he he gets out, you know, and he vows never to come back, even though Harold, that little shit, uh brings him back because he doesn't believe <laughs> believe Stu. Um, you know, and he has to find his way. Um, you know, so he wanders like a, a lot of these characters have this have this period where they are wandering across the countryside, you know, walking along the streets, seeing the, you know, just the the traffic jams and the dead cars and noticing all the, you know, horrifying scenes of people dying. Um, where they're like out of their mind with loneliness. Um and this is Another one of the ways that King really lines everything up and takes a bunch of stuff into account and, you know, in painting this picture of like what happens if just everybody dies. Like this is a very good end of the world story, you know, and those are a dime a dozen like dystopias are like kind of everywhere. This feels this feels realistic in a way and kind of horrifying for. You know, after the shell shock, everything kind of everybody just kind of becomes numb to it. The the early section of this book and the the way that you are kind of introduced feels like too strong a word. The way that you're kind of tossed into this world in the dark tower mm-hmm. um, is I, I have always just been taken by like if if you've read the stand and then you get to that part like it is so much more affecting after having read the stand than it was the first time I read through. Um, is it wastelands that they, they find that, or is it later? Oh, it's wizard, wizard and glass. That's why we're, uh, we're, we're covering yeah. up coming up. Oh yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I read 
I read this after. And so it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Captain trips. All right. <laughs> now, now, um, we, now we know what happens now. Now I get it. Yeah. Now, you know, the rest of the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> Autumn, do you have anything to say about kind of the wasteland aspect of this? Not as much. I think it's more interesting. Uh, again, I, I love the order that you're doing this in because it's so much more impactful reading it in the upcoming book after you've actually seen what's going on. Like seeing it referenced in the, the upcoming books is it makes it a lot more fun and a lot more satisfying. Yeah. And you kind of have to you kind of have to see it. You have to know know what this book is before before you go into it and like in that way that part of the, that that part of wizard and glass is kind of hostile to people who haven't like read everything and it's the first the first kind of move that he has made to link the dark tower to a bunch of other stuff you know to like to you know to to, to start using that series as a nexus for all of his work yeah it actually makes it a lot more stressful for me when you read about it in the dark tower. Cause I'm like, should these guys be wearing masks? Like they're on a, a subway and <laughs> or something, you know, like, a, and over in Asia, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't need Jake to start coughing. You no, know, that, that, that'd suck. Oh no. We, 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 we passed by the wrong window to the, to the wrong reality. And now we're done for. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Keflex isn't going to save us now. Nope. Didn't save them. That might be some some good inter interdimensional Gan blessed Keflex that you know that that that, that, that does the job. Um, we're introduced, uh, you know, as Stu is wandering across Vermont to one of my favorite characters in the book. Um, you know, not only because it, he is a uh, an author insert who is just kind of like who 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 flies off the handle about kind of the philosophy about what's going on. Uh, but just because I, I like his personality a lot, uh, Glenn Pequod Bateman, the retired sociologist who is a terrible painter, but because everybody is dead, he's probably one of the better painters in the world. <laughs> That's and, a good point. And, and his good dog. And his good dog. Yeah. Such a good boy. Kojak. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite parts about Kojak is his name used to be Big Jim, which is a fact that we have no reason to know. <laughs> nope. But it's a good fact. It is. <laughs> you know, you know St this book is so long that Stephen King even put a point of view chapter in for a dog. That is a good chapter. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. That's one of my very favorite chapters. Yeah, his in, uh... his cross country journey. You know, his uh, uh, they 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 didn't make it, but it formed the basis for um, oh gosh, oh no. Uh, what am I? What am I saying? What's the what's the what's the movie with the with the two dogs and the cat who? Who uh, go oh. across? Oh, oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's a third Homeward Bound movie after they got lost in the city in part two. Ah, fuck me, why? Like, don't start the joke if you don't know the thing. <laughs> I was, I was really hoping I would have more runway for that <laughs> one, guys. Man, I, I forgot that there was a second Homeward Bound movie. Yeah, um, I, I, I remember seeing it as a kid in the theater, and I assure you, it wasn't very good. Uh, yeah, it, it really, really wasn't. I, uh, I know that I saw it at some point, but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but Glenn Bateman, you know, like they, like Stu becomes fast friends with him, and one of my favorite things about him is, you know, he's very upfront, you know, with the, you know, with the idea that, like, yeah, I wasn't, you know, like I, I was a professional, I was an academic, but like I didn't really thrive in the old world. 
you know, like he talks about how he would open up a savings account and, you know, close it the you know, the next day. You know, he would he, you know, end up eating peanut butter sandwiches because he used up all of all of his money before his next next paycheck. Like he didn't have his life together. Um, and he, you know, is taking a lot of this change in stride because he sees it as an opportunity to, like, actually see what happens to people at nascent societies after such a catastrophe. It's not like it's not amoral. You know, he's not like, oh, yes, all of this death is worth it. But like he seems relatively unflapped and kind of like really game to move on and really happy about, you know, having somebody to talk to because he really loves to talk. And his stuff is so quotable and fun. You know, <laughs> give me one man and I'll do this. Give me two and I'll do this. Three, they'll form a society. I mean, he's just a fun character. <laughs> Five, they'll form religion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's it's good stuff. And I'm very happy that he wasn't just a one-off. Like, eventually, you know, Stu, after he meets up with the others, ends up going back to uh, go, going back to get them, uh, you, know, to, to, you know, to get him and Kojak to uh, to kind of come along. Uh, and, and Glenn and Glenn Bateman is like, you know, this support character throughout the rest of the book, and you know, get, provides an awful lot of kind of like insight or some of the uh, some of the broader, you know, symbolism. Not in a very elegant way, I have to say, but I like his character all the same in spite of that. What do you think of uh, of, of Glenn Evan? I I've always liked Glenn. Like it. <laughs> I, I don't I, I have a hard time imagining anybody not liking Glenn. <laughs> and uh I don't know. I, I I I'm not really sure how much to say without uh th there's there's so much of the character stuff that's hard to talk about in it, it just talking about the first part of this book because the 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 really interesting part about these characters is they're in the entirety of their development mm -hmm. and or or uh or lack thereof yeah. i guess so you can and, like you can talk about this because they're you know this is about when they are um having the dreams right and right even, but I, oh, go ahead. I i just i i love glenn's character so much and the way that his story ends has always just made me so sad every single time yeah I, uh, that that's what I was going to lead to because you know people who are listening to this should probably understand you know we're going to have to talk about some of this for you know for for for, for context as kind of this consummate you know academic um you know agnostic or what have you like oh I'm I'm interested in this like he is skeptical of the idea of like larger forces being brought in his undoing and how he actually also helps things along like his role is in actually confronting and facing flag and summing him up to actually not be as not be as you know terrifying as everything else had uh you know led him to believe right actually looking yeah. in the face and saying oh you know actually like i have no idea why we were so scared of you in the first place and he pays dearly for that <laughs> yeah but that is you know at least a thousand pages from now <laughs> there's a chapter here this is another one of the chapters that i that, that was added for the expanded edition but i cite it uh along with like the patrick hofstetter chapter in it um and 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 one and one particular um one particular chapter in book seven 
um, that is one of these great chapters in horror. Uh, I refer to it as the no great loss chapter. Um, do you know specifically oh. when I, which one I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. This is some of probably my favorite writing out of any work of popular fiction that I've read. <laughs> I love it because it's, I mean, it's, oh, so go, go ahead. Uh, complete your thought. I, I was just going to say that it, it's strange and it's predictable and it's fascinating. A story might be a paragraph. A story might be three pages. And I got to tell you, old, old Autumn Greer probably would have died on the first page of that section. Like, oh, oh Autumn didn't know about botulism. Whoops. <laughs> now she's dead. No great loss. You know? <laughs> this, this, wait a minute. This can is bloated. There's the, the 25% extra. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In particular for me, I think one that stands out is the girl that kept her dead family in the refrigerator. And that that line, you know, she's going down there to keep checking on them. You're seeing her internal monologue about it. But that that line about um, it was too not cold enough to freeze. But it was um, anyway, freezing versus starving in that refrigerator after she got herself trapped in there was just <laughs> It was just a fascinating, dark little twist story. Yeah, you know what we're referring to is a chapter in the middle of the book, which you will know if you've read it, um, where King describes kind of the, the 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 second plague or the second you know the second epidemic, which is people who survived Captain Trips but have are, are you know are not equipped to actually deal with life after society has fallen. Uh, so you know the smallest accidents. You know, the, 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 the slightest mishap that could be made worse or fatal by the fact that nobody is around to help you um, is, you know, it becomes deadly. Right. So you have people, you know, you have a, a, a junkie who follows some leads from his old dealers to go to this massive, you know, to this massive stash and, you know, shoots up, but doesn't realize that, um, you know, this, that this dealer had been cutting everything. He'd never, you know, he'd never actually taken anything that pure. So he died. Um, you have people who are dealing with, you know, their, their abusive spouses and things like that. You have people, you know, sometimes just like one sentence, like, oh, he fell off of a ladder and died, you know, no great loss. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's so, it's so prosaic to the point where like, I will sometimes just say no great loss in the same way that I might say, oh, so it goes, you know, like from Slaughterhouse Five, like it is so good. Yeah. <laughs> Evan, does it stick with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is. This is one of those uh, those sections in Stephen King's catalog that, uh, similar to the Fall of Blood, has I'll I'll sometimes just like have random flashes to it for no explicable reason, and uh, it's it's just so weird and so unsettling on such a <laughs> very core base level. Yeah. And uh, this is—it's much more personal and intimate than the Fall of Blood, and (laughs) I think that makes it um, a lot. I'm going to go with spookier. Yeah, like you know, it's 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 everyday stuff, you know. Like, yeah, I I live alone, and I and and I like that fact. It's 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 pretty sweet. You know, I I generally don't have the like Liz Lemon fear of choking and nobody being around to help me kind of kind of deal. that's a healthy fear not to have. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, but there, but there's some of that, like where I'm up on a stool changing, uh, 
you know, ch- changing a light bulb where it's like, yeah, you know, if, situ- if, if situations were just a little bit different, I could fall and break my neck. I could, I could totally a million dollar baby myself and I would not have a, uh, I would not have a way out of this. Uh, yeah, it's pretty spooky. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking right now because I'm Googling life alert bracelet because I'm getting stressed. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, I've got so many Amazon Echoes that I could probably find a way to make it do a nine a nine one one call just by my voice. <laughs> um, call the police. <laughs> call an ambulance. Oh boy, I'm definitely gonna have to gonna have to cut that out. <laughs> I, I will keep the gag, but I will cut out the name. Um, man, the modern <laughs> the modern day is really really weird. <laughs> yeah. So. What? Oh, that's right. I, I did say that like somebody that doesn't have the... uh, God oh, damn shoot. it. A L E X A. Um they're, they're... as as someone as someone else who doesn't have one, uh is is it that you you don't want to say it because it will trigger the device or is it like a yeah, like a it'll... copyright intellectual property thing? No, it'll 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 trigger the device like if if, okay. if, you're, if you're listening to it in the or... same room. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're in a real Xbox off situation. A, a, a little bit, yeah. And I'm going to have to ask you not to abuse that because it just gives me more editing to do. <laughs> to, to duck okay, the sure. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's perfectly fine. It, it, it is a fun joke, but uh, but it also doesn't make work. Uh, we can have both. Uh, so Stu, you know, on the road, eventually meets the, this, this other party who we're going to talk about next here. Uh, this girl named Fran. A uh, twenty-year-old girl and this boy named Harold. She seems perfectly nice and perfectly practical. Harold is kind of a piece of shit. Um, you know he is. Well, we'll talk about Harold when we get there. Uh, but Harold doesn't want to join up with you know with Stu because he is very jealous. You know of guarding Fran. And there's this there's this moment where Stu you know like pulls Harold aside and says like, "Hey, listen, you know you don't have to worry about this. Don't be so don't be so paranoid." Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to horn in on your action. And then immediately he does. Yeah. So we should talk about Fran and, and, and Harold and, and get a little bit more, get a little bit more of the, uh, of, of the background on these, on, on these folks, because, uh, that is important because even though I call Harold a piece of shit, uh, he's also the character that I have the most kind of like sympathy for. Not the most sympathy is not a sympathetic character. Uh, I, I I am intrigued by Harold as a as as a fictional person. Is is, is that a politic way to say it? Yeah, I I think I I would agree with that. <laughs> like he's he's he is not a character that I like. No. Um. I also don't like him because he reminds me of me. Yeah, <laughs> I. It's not an easy I thing to really, say, but I really didn't like this character when I was reading this book, and I was a teenager. <laughs> you just need to be a little bit nicer to my friend Harold, okay? You you try growing up with a sister like that who's so perfect, perfect Amy, yeah, right? You know, just the 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 the, the model runway of her life. Everything given to her, you know. My 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 dad saying all this stuff to me, like completely emasculating me. It's humiliating. I don't have yeah. friends at school. 
I'm an outcast. I, you know, I have to, uh, I have to hide my insecurity behind, uh, you know, a, a guise of pseudo intellectualism, of precociousness. Oh, wait, am I, I'm only 16 and Brandy's a cutie. (laughs) You know, we're the only two left. And, you know, she said not if I was the last person (laughs) in the world. And guess, guess what? Every dog gets his day. (laughs) 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 So, um, so we're we're kind of rewinding back to where the beginning of the book because we're you know we're we're in pre plague times you know Fran we find out in her introduction uh you know she is introduced by confronting her boyfriend or you know somebody she's seeing at the time saying like hey guess what Jesse um you know I'm glad you came up here from Portland you know we're in Ogunquit, Maine um I'm I'm glad you came up here because I'm pregnant you know like she is you know she opens this kind of dealing with you know, an un- unwanted pregnancy. And this kind of follows her throughout the rest of the book and becomes kind of a climactic moment l- l- later on. Um, and her dad is, you know, really kind of forgiving, but her mom is, you know, outraged. There's there's this amazing chapter that was added in the extended edition about, you know, like the den, you know, kind of representing her mom's, you know, distance from her and, you know, also like how prim and proper everything is and showing that, uh, you know, Fran's mother is more interested in the appearances, doesn't really care about her daughter's well-being as much as he cares, she cares about kind of the legacy of the family and stuff like that. So Fran, you know, even before the super flu is kind of dealing with this dramatic situation that is kind of wiped off the slate. Well, you know, aside from the baby thing um, by the events, you know, by the events of the book. Um, what do you guys think of Giggly Giggly Fran? I will say that Fran is one of the more lovingly rendered Stephen King characters. You know, sometimes we don't get as much internal monologue with Susanna in the Dark Tower series. Mm-hmm. She's kind of defined more by her plot, but the characterization is up with Fran. I can't think of a single female Stephen King character that stands out. I mean, even in Dolores Claiborne, uh, I know less about, I mean, that's more of a character than a person. Fran feels very, very real. Yeah. When I say she's giggly, like that isn't to imply that she's a ditz, although the Molly Ringwald characterization of this is is a little bit more flighty than I would like. Like we I'm happy you 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 uh hit on the inner monologue kind of, kind of side of this because she, you know, we we get a sense of the way she thinks and the way she kind of assembles these things, especially when she, you know, finds her she finds her dad dead. Um and we just kind of get her at her most mentally distraught, like getting lost in these little rhymes, you know, that she, that, that, that she is, uh, you know, thinking about these little parables and stuff like, you know, her, her thought process is, is kind of laid bare and it humanizes her in a way, you know, that you sometimes don't get when you just see somebody's actions. Right. Oh, I was just going to say, you had mentioned the scene with her father, which is one of the most evocative. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine doing what she did with a member of my family. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You know, just like, she knows that her dad will rot up there, you know, on the second floor. And, you know, she puts together like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's a shame he had to die on such a, such a beautiful, warm, you know, June or July day. Um, and she ends up having to like, sew a shroud around him and carry him down to the garden and bury him there. Like it is a very, it's a heart wrenching thing. Yeah. Uh, Evan, I've, Honestly, never really had super strong thoughts or feelings about Fran. 
like she's she's fine like she's she's an, an interesting character for some reason for me she always kind of gets lost in the shuffle with with everything else going on I think that relates to something unfortunate that happens where after Harold is introduced and especially after they leave Ogunquit, um, she's sidelined and she kind of becomes, you know, she gets these point of view chapters, especially because, you know, a lot of the exposition comes from, from her diary, you know, where we get her as an observer and she is writing to her unborn child. Um, she eventually kind of just becomes an object to define Harold and his, and his turn more than, more than a lot of other you know, more than other aspects of her character, which is unfortunate. Yeah, that 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 probably is uh, most, if not all, of what's uh, what's behind it. Yeah. Um, so we're introduced to uh, you know to, to Harold. You know, he swings by. He's one of the only other people who is who you know who has survived in the town. You know, he is driving around in this stolen Cadillac. You know, like oh, what does he care? He doesn't. He doesn't, he's not alive anymore. The person that I took this from is kind of going around and looting all the candy. Um, Harold is overweight. He's got acne. He's always eating candy bars and stuff like that. He is incredibly pretentious, you know, and, you know, I mean that in a very literal sense, like he is compensating for his own, you know, perceived lack of self-worth, self-worth because of his social and family situation by being this, you know, uh, by affecting this struggling artist, you know, deep author kind of persona, um, you know, and trying very hard to dominate everybody else by, you know, just always having the smart ass comment. Um, it's worth noting that King has based this character somewhat on himself when he was in high school. So this, this does come from a, from, from, from a point of sympathy, um, and he has the opportunity to grow, you know, he has every opportunity to, to not be like this, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't take it because of his kind of lifelong obsession with, with Fran, who was, you know, his sister's best friend. I think that we really see with Harold, um, and we haven't talked about Larry yet. We'll talk about him a little bit later, but you see, I, I think that there's a parallel, like. Harold's someone that thinks that he deserves success but hasn't realized it. Larry's got that hit song and he doesn't seem to kind of give a shit about it, um, aside from what it can kind of get him. It's interesting to see how two people by this same event, one grows and turns from a total piece of shit into a, a pretty stand-up guy. Mm -hmm. And the other one, I mean, they're presented with the same opportunities. It, it really just highlights the journey that both of those characters make, having them next to each other as a foil for each other. Yeah. <laughs> His, uh, Harold's relationship with Larry is really funny um, because, you know, Harold does have good ideas. And one of the things that he does is to is to leave these, uh, you know, is to leave these signs, you know, telling telling about their movements and, you know, telling anybody who finds them, hey, here's where you can where, where, where you can come get us. Um, and Larry is following, you know, following in the footsteps, not understanding exactly who who Harold is and his his description of Harold um, based on, based on this evidence is so the exact opposite <laughs> when he, when he's finally going to meet him, like the picture that we get of what Larry expects Harold to be is one of the more comic moments in the book. Absolutely. There, there's a parallel for, for them as well when they're both tempted by Nadine later in the book too. I mean, they're, they're both the two characters that are on the other side of her when they're um, in Colorado. 
Oh yeah, you're right. Nine. Uh, I was uh, <laughs> I was so obsessed with this part of the book that I forgot about that. Yeah, they are kind of set up against each other, aren't they? Huh. Um. So after this, after the Cadillac encounter, Fran finds Harold uh, shirtless and just kind of like in a daze, like mowing his lawn crazily, like she's worried he's going to have a heart attack, you know, because he is doing this, you know, almost uh, in, you know, in, in in a trance, and you know, she comforts him, and that's when they decide that they're gonna, you know, they're 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 gonna go. Um, and they eventually, you know, end up meeting up with, with, you know, with, with Stu. That's where we get the, uh, you know, Harold being very jealous of, you know, of, 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 of Fran and also Harold not, you know, not believing, um, Stu when he says, yeah, Stovington is dead. Like they're on their way to Stovington because they believe that, oh, they're researching a cure there. Maybe we can help, you know, and in spite of that, they drag Stu back to the site of his nightmare, which is, you know, some emotional violence that Harold does, which is not great. I have to tell you, Stu is a lot. I mean, he just doesn't have an ounce of passive aggressiveness in his body, does he? No. I would spend the whole trip to Vermont being like, you know, everybody's going to be dead when we get there. <laughs> I don't know why y'all don't believe me. I mean, <laughs> I. I I don't know what this says about me, but it would be a misery driving with me on like mopeds to the place that I escaped from where everyone is dead. I mean, I wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't go along for the ride. Like this is where we would, this is where we would part ways. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd sit in the parking lot. Everyone would come out throwing up. I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah. You believe old autumn now? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of bodies in there, huh? <laughs> Not an awful lot of cures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go on the third floor. Maybe the cure's up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You find any cures in there, little buddy? <laughs> Why did this character turn into Stewie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, one thing I, for I forgot to make a note of is uh, this is where the dreams start for them as well. Um, starting specifically, I believe the first dream we get of the Dark Man is um, Fran uh, dreaming of this, you know, shadowy figure coming after her with a uh with a coat hanger uh you know and that is something that's going to hold true for a lot of these other characters um which is their worst you know the dark man is going to manifest as kind of their worst fears so like you know Stu will dream of stovington and you know have this shadowy figure of elder chasing him through this endless maze you know etc and down the line uh notably i i think that harold neither harold nor nor nadine end up having the dreams which is um, strange, or at least they don't—they don't, they don't uh, cop to them. Yeah, that's right. They don't cop to them. But like that is a common aspect of everybody who is spared is that they are all vivid dreamers. Uh, let's talk about the bad guys. Let's take this intermission because uh, I love the bad guys, and I wish that we had more time with them. Lloyd is another character that really finds himself after all of this. He, he he does, and it's it's halfway it's halfway through, you know, magical intervention on Flag's part just by being around him, but also you know just like a change in circumstance, in Lloyd Henry and the Trash Can Man, we have two characters who never who never got any. Uh, I was I was trying to avoid saying never got any respect, so I apologize for that. But just never had anybody want to have them around were always looked down upon for their condition. Um, you know, Lloyd being, you know, kind of kind of a dumb guy, you know, petty criminal, just kind of like a like a like a thug almost, right? 
um, and Trash Can Man being somebody who is legitimately mentally ill, you know, who you know was institutionalized for pyromania, who had you know kind of been run through the ringer of these you know uh, of, of these treatments, leaving him you know kind of just like tortured with these hallucinations of the kids he grew up with, taunting him for being somebody who lit trash cans and mailboxes on fire and wet his pants while he did so. Man, it sounds like he grew up in Derry, Maine, huh? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> he's got those bullies. <laughs> yeah, but I think he, uh, he. I don't think he grew up in Gary. Uh, I think he's Indi- maybe Indiana because he was in Terre Haute, or I don't actually he, know how to pronounce that. Yeah, he got sent up to Terre Haute for the uh, uh, for their institution, right? Um, Trash Game Man only gets one chapter here, but he ends up being kind of uh, the person that flag brings in to help him like sniff out artillery to like go out into the desert to these military um you know kind of facilities to get you know to 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 get weaponry because of you know because of trash can man's um kind of obsession with explosives and things like that he specifically says like you know i'm going to set you to burn um and we're introduced to trash like as he is um his 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 name is uh donald merwin elwin or something like that um, but yeah, you know, just he takes on the persona of Trash Can Man, and I will call him Trashy because that is a fun thing to call a person, I guess. Um, you know, we're introduced to him as he is like going up to these gigantic oil tanks in Gary, Indiana, and lighting them on fire. Like, and eventually, you know, th- like this is presented in fragments, but like as the characters end up moving west, they go past whole towns that are completely burned up because all all the oil, oil tanks have you know been destroyed. Um, and this is trash can man's work. Like he is, you know, like that's what he does in a world without any real authority is he indulges in this obsession. I've always thought that it was kind of the, how is a Raven, like a writing desk of this book. We never find out what old lady simple said when trash torched her pension check. <laughs> yeah. What did she say? It's asked so many times. Like, wait, why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Evan, what do you what do you think of Trashy? I may, this is maybe one of my favorite characters in uh, that we're going to talk about on this podcast, just because he's so strange and relatable in very uncomfortable ways. <laughs> you know, just just because of the childhood taunting, like there, but for the grace of God, go um, like, like, can you elaborate on that? Sort of. It's it's kind of. I I I can't personally relate to trash, but I I guess that there's there's just something like his his impulses seem very human and very realistic and very believable, and uh, it's it's not so much a there but there but for the grace of God go I situation. It's more <laughs> like you know that's not me, but I get it. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, he doesn't seem evil to me. No, there's he's he's an earnest. Yeah. Yeah. Like at at first blush, he kind of reminds me of Gaffer, but he I don't think is really anything like Gaffer, actually. Oh, you get get Gasher. Did I say Gaffer? Yeah. Yeah. I I just wanted to make sure that you weren't referring to another character. No, no, definitely Gasher. Yeah. Um. Like there's there's really not 
a lot of similarity there at all. <laughs> aside um, from the from the appearance at the end. Aside from the appearance aside from the appearance and like the general weirdness. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's like he 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 legit legitimately needs to be cared for. Like he, you know, got, had a bad break in the system, but like he is a danger to everybody around him, but not because of like any design that he has, it's because of this obsession, you know, because of this, you know, almost paraphilia toward flame and explosion, right? Yeah. Yeah. Trash Game Man is uh, good. Like, you can maybe take some shots at it for being Stephen King using the mentally disabled, uh, you know, in a supernatural way, um, which is just kind of what he does. It's it's a little bit part of the uh, part of the landscape you have to kind of accept when you're here. Um, yeah. But that is... It's not... It could be worse. Yeah. It could be Tom Cullen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's talk about Lloyd. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that when we talk about some of these characters, like some of the point of view stuff that he does with Mother Abigail later, I sometimes feel like Stephen King, who kind of came up in Maine that has a probably a pretty homogenous in some ways ethnic population or what you're exposed to. I mean, I, I don't personally have a friend that I know in person that I hang out with all the time from West Virginia. So if I were going to write some West Virginia character, I'd be like, he wiped the coal dust off of his face and then went to a Bim Bam live show. Like, <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. So it's like he is just like, okay. And he doesn't think sometimes stereotypes are harmful. But, I mean, if, again, you're, you're kind of sometimes – if you had me describe a Finnish person, I'd be like, aren't they known for being stoic? Okay, I got a stoic Finnish guy in my novel. You oh. know, I want representation. I just don't know how to do it very well. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be talking about the fjords a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> there, there, there's an amazing, uh, onion article that, uh, it's, it's one of their ask, you know, like, a you know, an advice column kind of thing. The, the, the headline is ask an old black woman as written by a college freshman. And oh, wow. if, if, if you, if you read it, it is almost exactly like what you get with, uh, with mother Abigail, like, <laughs> You know, it's it's a lot of, you know, just kind of uh, just like, you know, back, back in my day kind of stuff, like, you know, just a, a lot of description about being soulful. It's like real. It, it It is very well observed satire on the part of the onion. And, you know, I I am of I'm a, I'm mostly of one mind about Mother Abigail. Like, I, I generally don't don't think that she's that inter interesting of a character in this. Um, but that is just, you know, again, something you. You know, you don't have to accept it because, like, it is worth criticizing, but it's just it's just something that he does. You know, he will, he being Stephen King, he will latch on to people of color or, you know, people who have, let's say, differing mental circumstances and use that toward his, you know, you know, toward his plot, right? In in, in some ways that don't seem especially forward-looking. Um, that said, doesn't happen an awful lot anymore in his books. You know, I guess when you're known for being somebody that can draw these beautiful portraits of characters, um, but you're known also as maybe being someone that it kind of falls apart sometimes in the plot dimension, I guess maybe that is why he's using so many of these characters to drive the plot. He's like, yeah. I'm not good at plot, so if I can just make the character be the plot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when he talks about the way he writes, and you can see that, you can see that here, like... He 
first gets a believable believable character and thinks real hard about what they would do in a situation you know and that's how you get you know somebody like harold lauder you know knowing that there's a plague center nearby because like of course he would know that because he reads it you know he, he, he reads about it <laughs> right um and with characters like trash K man who have their own kind of demented logic uh to them you know it, it it achieves similar results, but it just seems unfortunate because of the uh, the, the particular quirks of the people he is uh, basing this off of. Um, Lloyd Henry is one of my favorite characters in this book. You know, um, we're introduced to him in this amazing way. Like, he, you know, they're driving across the desert. Lloyd Henry and his friend Poke. <laughs> in the audio book, uh, Grover Gardner does this amazing voice for Poke. Like, he sounds like a character out of Squidbillies. <laughs> we're gonna poker eyes them lord like it's real over the top it's it's, <laughs> it's pretty great um but they're like these small-time criminals who just have a whole bunch of drug drugs in the back in the back seat of their car who are driving across the desert after having killed a bunch of people because well we're criminals so we might as well do it um specifically poke uh, who is the one, you know, Lloyd insists that he only did small time stuff before he got in with Poke. You know, Poke has this, uh, you know, uh, Magnum. And then he describes shooting people as pokerize them. Let's pokerize them. Um, yeah, it's real, uh, you know, kind of grim and kind of cartoonish. It's almost juggalo behavior. Or <laughs> I, I know, I know juggalos are political allies now, so that's, that, that's, that, that, that's fine. Um, <laughs> it is the cartoon version of a juggalo, of juggalo behavior. Even that term "pokerize" is so dumb. Like it's, I mean, it's it's exactly that. These are the kind of guys that would think that was a cool term. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's brand our gun violence. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's just a little small character in there, but I love the attorney that uh, Lloyd works with when he's trying to avoid uh, the electric chair. Yeah. He's so, uh, you know, it's it's obviously a public, uh, you know, a, a public defender. He was coming in and just like really down to earth brass tacks. Like, hey, guess what? You're gonna die. Like, the only one other person has gotten off on this procedure because he's fast tracked for the electric chair. Uh, you know, because he was accessory to you know f f felony uh, homicide. Um, but yeah, like he just he's real, you know, real no nonsense about it. Uh, what, what in particular do you like about the attorney character? Oh, he's just like you said, he's so matter of fact, he's got a whole plan and he um, is, is so he's like, nope, shut up. Don't say that. I mean, he just <laughs> oh yeah, let's... like it seems like he's being paid by the hour and he's like, he's like, OK, they only gave me a hundred bucks. So we got to get this done. This yeah. is what you're going to say. I love the um, I, I love the fact that Lloyd is too dumb to understand that he is being coached on how he should testify. Yes, you know, <laughs> because the lawyer starts saying like, "Oh, you were you were afraid of Poke, weren't you?" Like, "No, no, we were we were buddies in this." No, you you were afraid of Poke. He got crazy, and you thought I need to go along with this, or he's going to pokerize me. <laughs> okay, when <laughs> when I say Homer Thompson, I will step on your foot, and you will respond hello. Though. <laughs> like, so the miniseries casting for this character as well was masterful. Oh, Miguel Ferrer is a national treasure. God rest his soul. Absolutely. Yeah. He's so good. Like they, they obviously cast him for the post smartening for, you know, for, 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 for his post uh, flowers for Algernoning 
um, or the height of that rather, and the, the post flowers for Algernon is real, real grim. Um, <laughs> um, you know, they, they, they cast him for that. It's hard, it's hard to read Miguel Ferrer as anybody, you know, as anything besides like this really like sharp, smart ass, you know, kind of dude. And who knows if that's just because of Twin Peaks or whatever, but yeah, it is, it is inspired casting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but Lloyd ends up in prison and he, uh, most notably, he ends up in prison during the plague and nearly starves to death. We get the descriptions of him eating live roaches, of uh, eating a rat, trying to eat the rat's tail, but it's too tough. Um, and eventually uh, moving up to eating some portions of a cellmate's leg. You know, I re- mean, in fairness, it's not like he was using it. <laughs> it was dead meat. Yeah, I, I don't. I, you know, it's hard to blame somebody for situational cannibalism, you know, it, I, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's hard to have an, you know, it's hard to have an awful lot of sympathy for, uh, for, for, for Lloyd, but I've got a lot of empathy, you know, it really serves to when flag comes in to save him, mm-hmm. the, the glib joking, glad handing way that he's like, Oh man, his leg looks a little thinner over there. Doesn't it buddy? I mean, it, <laughs> it just really heightens. I don't know. It's so ridiculous that he's in here in this jail with his magic and his snapping fingers and his <laughs> black stones with red flaws. I mean, it's, it's just wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's almost like he's blackmailing him because he understands that Lloyd knows, knows blackmail, right? Like, Oh, it'd be a shame if anybody found out you ate a dude, you know, <laughs> uh, pl- playing on the fact that, you know, Lloyd, like anybody is, is mortified by what he, by what he has been, dr- you know, driven to do. But, um, you know, Lloyd forever kind of pledges his life to flag because he would have starved to death in that prison if it wasn't, if it wasn't for flag coming to rescue him. And flag knows that, you know, Black really does draw draw his three, right? He draws Nadine, he draws Trashy, and he draws uh, Lloyd, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. He's got his whole uh, his all, all of his lieutenants. <laughs> I guess that makes um the trash can man Jake, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, plucky old trash can Jake. Yeah. <laughs> Evan, what, what, what's what's your thought on Lloyd? I, I like I like his introduction, and after his introduction, I kind of forget about him. Yeah, he kind of gets sidelined uh, in favor of um, everybody else, really. Yeah, I just wish we got more more of the Vegas perspective on this, like the glimpses that we get of kind of the the ragtag group of people that that Flag assembles over there, um, and the way you know, just like the the particular way that his society is run. I just I want to see that I want to see that perspective more than we actually than we actually get, um, and I think that a lot of that might be might be guided by wanting to get more of Lloyd because he gets infinitely more interesting as he as he rises to the to this position of authority. Like he is probably the most ascendant of these characters in terms of going from a small time criminal to being like the you know the everyday point person for keeping this whole this whole civilization together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting line when Glenn says that he thinks that most of the techies are going to go to Las Vegas. I mean, it's not all bad people there. It's people that just like to, you know, I think Glenn says work in an orderly atmosphere where (laughs) everything's clearly defined and yeah, 
people who, people who want quick and understandable solutions and and order right right you know well like the um flag is getting the engineers and you know at mother abigail is getting the liberal artists you know or the you know it's kind of the people who didn't fit in fit in elsewhere you know yeah yeah um Flag's introduction itself is very good. That is another that is another quite good chapter, like describing him kind of insinuating his way into and out of these these um radical political groups. Like he he joined a black power group and like acted as one of its agitators in and nobody would question nobody nobody questioned him on that, even though his skin was white. Like just the the way that he walks around with these pamphlets for different ideologies and stuff like that, you know, always being the whisper in the ear um, to incite people to do, you know, to, to, to do their worst is a very interesting idea. And I think also kind of like leads to a little bit of his downfall because, you know, this is him, his time arising, you know, we, we get him as he is walking across America, you know, and he, he says like, ah, yes, this is. You know, this is my time. It's arrived now. You know, the, the, the plague is here. The wind has changed and he decides to start trying to levitate. Um, he's never assumed power before. He's only manipulated it. I think that that is also one of the big ways that, you know, he he sets himself up for a fall. The flag's whole goal. You know, he goes he goes to an old uh, to an old friend, an old, uh, uh, you know, somebody he used to stomp around with. And, uh, you know, he's dying of the plague and gets the money and the car that he needs to get to uh, to get to Vegas. Um, in order to set this up, um, and yeah, he will he will attract the orderly people, even though he is a representative of chaos, um, and try to rebuild all the worst parts of the old society. Um, from this intermission about the villains, let's hit our last two parties before we uh, before we call it a night. Uh, Larry Underwood, um, who flag, <laughs> who I must say flag, uh, who King says his fans wanted. Um, Oh gosh, if they ever did a movie to cast Bruce Springsteen as Larry Underwood based on oh. based on Springsteen's Springsteen's performance in his music videos, which seems incredibly misguided to me. Yeah, I don't I don't agree Absolutely. with that at all. <laughs> um I definitely prefer, you know, Larry Underwood as a as somebody who is not known for that. If you're going to cast somebody, make it an actor, please. Unless you're doing something like Tom Petty and the Postman, yeah. I when when I picture Larry Underwood, I I don't I I never remember how the character is actually characterized in the book because all that I can picture is one of the nameless erstwhile Guns N' Roses guitarists who aren't Slash. <laughs> you mean the, the the parade of nobodies that came after uh, the, the that came in the Chinese democracy phase? Yeah, the the ones who aren't Slash and aren't Buckethead. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird because when they updated when they updated the book for 1990, um, you know, when this was set in 1978, you could you could possibly believe that there was somebody who would who would have a you know a hit single in a song called "Baby Can You Dig Your Man," which almost sounds like a like 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 a doo wop uh, kind of kind of thing. In 1990, that does not sound a- at all plausible to me. You know, no. almost specifically because of the because of the Guns and Roses kind of uh, kind of deal, but yeah, you know, Larry Underwood he's a he's he's a singer. You know, he's he's a musician who happens to have written 
this song called baby can you dig your man that ev- like everybody is sick of by the point the by the point the <laughs> book begins uh you know when we're introduced to flag he's walking along the uh walking on the road singing it uh it's playing everywhere we get snippets of the uh, you know uh, of the lyrics that are playing um and eventually after everything after everything uh falls apart i think it's fran who like they're they're walking and she, you know she's talking to larry and like oh my gosh i've got this annoying song stuck in my head something can you dig your man or whatever um and she asks him like hey do you remember who sung that and he says i i have no idea like he doesn't take credit for it <laughs> but yeah he like he is this he is this ascendant um and you know uh singer rock and roll star kind of person who you know it's hard to believe that he would win a grammy but it's easy to believe that people who wanted to make money off of him would tell me it would win him a grammy uh and notably about larry he ain't no nice man <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know we were introduced to him in, in in new york uh but it's only you know he's only returned there returned home because people are after him because you know after he got his advance he used his money to throw this massive house party with a whole bunch, you know, just all this drugs and alcohol and um, things like that and racked up this tab and he needed to skip town, you know, and basically just kind of welch on his debt. And his old bandmates told him essentially like, yeah, this is just like, you know, just like you. There's something, uh, there's a line that is repeated about him. There's something about you that's like chewing on tinfoil. And like later on, kind of heartbreakingly, his mother says like, Oh, you're a taker. You know, there's always been something missing in you. You're not bad. You're, 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 you're just, you're just selfish. You know, like it doesn't make me love you any less, but it just, it, it, it breaks my heart to see you, you know, to, to, to see you doing this. Um, it's hard to, to, to like Larry at this particular point in the story, especially when, when we, when we see him, because we know he's good and he's, you know, he's good intention, but even, you know, after he has these, you know, these moments, he is still like kind of sexually taking advantage of somebody like doing a, you know, a, a hit and run with a dental hygienist, the person who screams, you ain't no nice man, you know, and that ends up being his characterization. Like he does things that he regrets and he feels very human in, in that way. But his most interesting thing is the way that he grows and the way that he eventually learns that he has it in him to be to be responsible for others yeah i think i think it's worth noting about larry that even when we're seeing him pre-epidemic he doesn't have a a negative intention in him a, a negative bone in his body he doesn't mean to harm anybody but he's so careless and like you said so selfish that these things happen around him Mm-hmm. you know and he's just completely oblivious yeah it's also never his fault too and we all yep you know i, I think what makes larry larry you work for me is we all either know somebody like that or we recognize parts of that in ourselves you know like again it, it is it is it is very very human behavior that's also what's nice about a book of this length is you would have known who Larry was if you had just seen the dental hygienist throw a spatula at him. <laughs> uh, you you would have known that guy. That guy would have made sense. You know, he would have mentioned that he owed money on his Z28. And you're like, okay, I, I know yeah. this guy. But getting to sit and spend that time with Larry and his mom, 
the way that Larry goes to her like a little boy, basically, with his, his head hanging down. I mean, it just you get so much time to, to draw these characters. Yeah. His mom is such a sweetheart, too. Like, you know, he comes back unannounced. And like the next day after she gets back from work, like she has all of his favorite food in the, you know, in, in, in the in the fridge. Like, uh, you know, she's got like. A, a toothbrush there for him and his his favorite brand of uh, of toothpaste like god bless her heart <laughs> and i don't mean that like in the yeah. southern way like it, you know like it is she she genuinely cares for him but she is not she is not to the point where she is going to sugarcoat her her, her real her real opinion about her son you know the, the the man that her son has become you know like the way he has never really grown up to this point you know, every time I think about Larry, I think about, and I actually teased my I teased my father about this sometimes. Every story that your parents have of you, they're never like, "Oh, remember that nice time you were 17." They're always stories about when you're a zero to 12, say, when you were learning something, you were so cute. Uh, <laughs> it's obviously not very rewarding for Larry's mom to have a 30 some odd year old son. No, <laughs> the, hon- the honeymoon's over. <laughs> yeah. Um... But yeah, like he he is in you know in Manhattan. He's you know he's he's on this island when everything kind of goes to shit. Like he gets you know he he gets some good money news from L.A. You know comes home to give his mom the good news, but finds out that she's sick. You know she's got the she's got the flu herself. You know and like between chapters, everything falls apart to the point where like he is in Central Park watching the monkeys in the zoo die. You know, finding finding dead bodies in the in the uh, the porta pots, and you know, listening to the doomsayers across the city screaming about monsters that are coming. Like it's it's a real bad scene. The way that New York, you know, again, this is the pre Disneyfication of New York or whatever. The way that it is sketched as like this, you know, kind of uh, prison for everybody to die. And what I keep coming back to is the smell, honestly. And when he meets Rita, she is completely fixated on the fact that, you know, it's it's high summer in in New York and everybody is baking in their high rises. You know, Um, this is this is scary to me as well. Like, you know, you have in general, the sense of place throughout this book is very good. um, But here it, uh, it it speaks to me. Yeah, New York is definitely not on my top 10 list of cities to experience a play again. No, no. Like, I mean, it's it just New York is a kind of a communicable disease, like <laughs> Mecca of sorts. You, yeah. you know, I mean, when you think about every mode of transportation, how many people touch a doorknob there in an average day? I mean, yeah. I'm surprised there was anyone left in New York. Yeah, you, 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 you spend, you know, hours of your day in a tunnel where you hold on to a bar that everybody else has held on to. I feel like even Stu would start coughing after like a few weeks in New York, you know, yeah. oh, like yeah. he'd be like, wow, I <laughs> thought I was immune, but after 40,000 exposures, I guess not. Yeah. No, uh, we're, we're done. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> just f- f- filing cabinets of the dead. Um, Rita is a character is introduced here. Um, she's a very tragic figure and kind of the last straw for Larry in terms of, you know, people, that it's not like he takes advantage of her, but like she shows him how unprepared he is for the realities of what's coming after him and, you know, kind of like helps him rise up 
uh, you know, to, to, to the occasion. She's kind of this, uh, this, the, this older socialite, um, that he ends up, you know, kind of like sleeping with, like he meets her in the park and, you know, she's immune and they decide to, you know, get off of Manhattan. Um, but she, you know, decides, well, my walking shoes might as well be these nice, you know, uh, sandals, you know, these just kind of like very elegant shoes that are, you know, strapped on like, no, you, you need, you need boots. And he loses patience with her over this, but she just does not, is not prepared for this at all. Like, you know, you mentioned a tragic figure. She, she really is. I mean, there's a lot to empathize with, with her as well. I mean, you're what, probably in your late fifties, early sixties, you kind of had this affluent lifestyle and now you're here stuck in New York. And I mean, you're looking at this kid to be the leader and, um, he ain't no nice guy. <laughs> I mean, I can't blame him for losing patience with her. Like, but it, he also is the one oh, who decided, absolutely. you know, like he decided to fall in with her and said like, Hey, let's let, you know, let, let, let's make a go of this. Like he has to take responsibility for her unpreparedness and he's just not ready for it. I, I guess that's part of what leads him to idolize Harold so much. Like Harold's obviously squiring these people around the country with grace and a plum. And <laughs> Larry couldn't even get a, get a rich lady out of New York, you know? Nope. <laughs> Um, that scene in the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, yeah. Again, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but just the idea of being stuck under the, under a river like that. Um, oh, just that'd a, be that'd be peak peak fear as if somebody in the tunnel in the dark asked me to eat chicken with them. That <laughs> that would be that. This would be my two big scares from the book in one place. Oh, it's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, does anything about the Lincoln Tunnel escape like stick out to you? The part that's always stuck out the, the part that's always stuck out to me uh is after they get out and Rita just dies. Yeah. She, like, she, she again, she's not prepared. Uh in a lot of ways, she is prepared because she has just a purse full of tranquilizers. Yeah. And it, it is one of the most quiet and unceremonious deaths of a named character in um at, at least in this book uh i i'm i'm trying to think of another one where it's it's it, like and, and yeah like she she is prepared because uh she she has a much more peaceful exit than just about anybody else that's always been the part that's been kind of notable about larry's introductory segment yeah um it's good that we that we get it through larry's point of view you know as he goes in and discovers her all i can think of is that line from the original vacation movie where they discover that the the the, the, the aunt that they're traveling with is you know is dead in the back seat and they've been driving with her they just that shot they thought they thought she was asleep and uh and 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 audrey you know she she looks over like she's screaming after they make the discovery saying oh my god a dead person breathed on me but but like um larry keeps beating himself up because like you know he got out of bed you know got out of the sleeping bag trying to leave her leave her there he was going back in to have sex with her you know and he like he beats himself up over that and he can't even bring himself to bury her you know yeah yeah it's real sad and like him trying to recover from that and writing, you know, being distracted by his grief and 
getting into a motorcycle accident to the point where when he finally meets Nadine and they're like, Hey, let's ride motorcycle. Like, no, no. Like Larry carries this with him for a long, for, you know, for a long time. Like everything that we've seen up to this point as they, you know, eventually get, you know, get to Stovington and get the, get, get the uh, directions to Nebraska. Um, is kind of this parade of tragedies that Larry either rightly or unrightly, <laughs> um, decides are his fault that help him grow and help him kind of be, you know, kind of become this person that everybody looks to as a leader in spite of the fact that he doesn't want it and, you know, didn't ask for it. All right. Um, we should talk about uh, Nadine a little bit because she intru- she is introduced um, along with Joe, this kind of mute wild boy who I think is introduced by, you know, Larry wakes up and a knife is at his throat. <laughs> um nadine is taking care of taking care of him most of her um most of her characterization happens later you know it's it's it it relates to the climax of the book in a lot of ways but she is this you know strikingly beautiful woman with you know long black hair but she has this streak of gray down the middle of it um and she denies having had the dreams about the dark man we're also introduced to lucy swan who ends up being the uh the betty to the veronica a little bit yeah (laughs) because uh in spite of the fact that larry is attracted to nadine they don't end up sleeping together because she has she has a a hang-up about it that we're gonna find out about here soon enough uh we should talk about nick's party before we before we round out because they're the closest to nebraska and they're the ones who ultimately find mother abigail first um nick andros is he kind of shares main protagonist duties i think along with uh, along with Stu. Like a young, yeah. uh, like a like a young man. Like I think he's in his like late teens or early twenties, um, and he's a deaf mute. So we have a main character who, you know, cannot hear. You know, he has this he has this disability and communicates with other people entirely by writing by writing notes. And he's introduced, you know, by you know terribly having these people beat the shit out of him in this Arkansas town in Shoyo, you know, being rescued by the you know by the sheriff. Um, it's hard to get a read on Nick because to me, it seems like his, his primary, his primary <laughs> characterization is that he is both good and honorable. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, there's not, not a whole lot to sink into on that level. No. And I don't know. And it sounds like it being uncharitable. I don't know how much of that has to do with how much his, his deafness kind of defines his character right like he 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 generally you know reacts to things in the appropriate way he doesn't have an awful lot of like downfalls or hard choices to make you know um he's just kind of presented as you know almost the heart of the group because of his blandness am i am i being harsh on that autumn he oh no no he he's he's an interesting character that I, I you know and i guess maybe an uncharitable sense well backing up a second when you depending i think sometimes on the age that you read this book i i wouldn't say that i was a thinking reader when i was younger i didn't think about authors as making conscious choices to put these characters in for reasons i'm like oh it's nick in the book mm-hmm. everything stephen king did makes sense everything's perfect it's it's almost like he put nick in there not to develop him but just to be you know when you look at that old twilight zone episode where 
the guy who loves to read survives the bombing, but then he breaks his glasses. It seems like Nick's character was put in more to be a foil for Tom. Like, how ironic is it that <laughs> um, the mentally handicapped boy runs into the boy that's the deaf mute and they can't communicate? Yeah, yeah, it's a real see no evil, hear no evil kind of situation. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and um, I mean, Nick's a good guy. I I think that the part that stands out the most for me in these scenes is who that julie laurie <laughs> she she does not get an adequate comeuppance she needs more of a comeuppance i would read an extra 100 pages with a comeuppance for julie yeah julie's a straight psychopath is the thing and i don't i don't mean that like in a ladies be crazy kind of sense like she is presented you know she's this young woman that nick meets after you know after they move on um you know for, 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 from shoyo who just kind of you know uses you uses sex I, I i can't say this in a non-shitty way uses sex to get what she wants to manipulate people and reacts violently when when nick turns her down he doesn't initially turn her down he he does you know sleep with her because that's that's kind of where we're at with with with, with this um but after he sees what she does to you know how she treats tom he's like yeah we don't need you and that sets her off like that that statement alone feels like a <laughs> it feels like it is engineered to hurt her as much as possible and she kind of deserves it you know especially because her reaction to rejection is to start firing openly at you know these two people yeah yeah and i mean t tell him poor tom that it's poison when he's just trying to give him medicine for his stomach i mean that yeah. that's the exact type of mean-spirited I, I have an acquaintance or two that do mean-spirited April Fool's jokes on Facebook and things like that. And yeah. it, it's always just somebody that's kind of like a, it, it, you know, if it, I mean, there's good April Fool's jokes. And then there's real mean-spirited ones where you trick people into thinking that you have a terminal illness or something. Like, that's Ugh, not a fun geez. goof. Yeah. But I think, I, think, I think Julie Lowry would think that was a really fun goof. <laughs> like, <laughs> I gotcha. You... That's right up her alley. Made you think I was made you think I was gonna die, huh? That makes you really really think about how much you need me, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Julie Lowry would start a fake GoFundMe just as a goof. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh man, you got right to the heart of it. Like, okay, like we're gonna update this again for 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 2017. <laughs> there we go. Oh man, she she does get a comeuppance because we have to assume that she's taken out at the end. Uh, because she does pop up again in Las Vegas, but yeah, she is. Ah, don't, don't don't tell, don't make life harder for other people. Don't 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 tell the mentally handicapped person that the medicine is poison. Like, yeah. Um, the interesting thing about Nick to me, to get back to this a little bit, like his his whole struggle with the you know with the sheriff and dealing with the the, the prisoners doesn't feel like it sets up an awful lot. Um. He gets interesting when he actually gets to gets to Nebraska and he staunchly remains atheist despite all of the evidence of the divine around him. Like he is one of these people, um, you know, like even even Glenn Bateman, you know, the intellectual, the you know, the philosopher is not immune to the superstition that arises from seeing all of this with, you know, with, with his own eyes. Right. Um, Nick. You know, in spite of the reverence that he feels from Mother Abigail, ends up not, uh, you know, kind of like being incredulous still to a certain extent. While still going along, he's not a hindrance. He's not like, that's dumb, you know, because of my beliefs. But like, that is 
that is a part of his characterization that because of his because of his upbringing like that is that you know that, that that's where he's at yeah he's a, he's always going to be a skeptic yes uh which is valuable now uh we should talk about tom collin too because nick uh runs across him in oklahoma uh he is um and i think he's like he's 40 or something but he's got the mind and behavior of a child because of his developmental disability it's so hard to to comment on tom cullen because unfortunately i just i don't have a lot of experience working with developmentally disabled people so i can't say how much of this is uh you know like a, like a positive and good depiction versus if this is a harmful one i just i just don't have a basis in that so i i apologize if i'm either reacting to you know the politics of his portrayal you know um you know in, in kind of an outsized way or if i'm not reacting enough um, the good thing about Tom Cullen is, you know, aside from the mystic, you know, from, from the mystic kind of stuff, uh, where he ends up being this vessel for, for, for God in a lot of ways through this auto auto hypnosis. Um, the good thing about him is that he is, um, purely good. There is nothing, there's nothing like sinister about his presentation. Like he, 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 he is just a positive force wherever he's at. How wonderful for Tom Cullen that he grew up with the dad that he did. I mean, there's such a there's such a tenderness in the way that Stephen King outlines. I mean, even with um, Julie with the poison, like, oh, no, my dad said any bottle that says this. Mm -hmm. No, that's not for Tom. It's everything about him just feels so good, like a big fluffy old Labrador, you know, a golden retriever. Like he's just a, a pure force of good. Even the house that he settles down in in uh, in in Boulder, like he eventually turns it into uh, like like Pee Wee's Playhouse almost, uh, because because he goes yeah, and he gathers said, all the stuff. Good, good. Yeah, he's got all the toys in the street. I mean, it, it he's adorable. Yeah, yeah. Cute guy. Like he, he ends up saving Nick's life too. You know, like they like he he knows how to react to a tornado in a way that Nick doesn't um, when they're you know when, when they're riding their bikes. Um, yeah. And Tom is, you know, got this, you know, tremendous affection for Mother Ab- Abigail, probably more than more than anybody else does because he's been having the dreams. You know, everybody here has the psychic connection, right? They are receiving this, you know, the, the, these CB um, kind of transmissions. You know, speaking of CB, they also just <laughs> in a sentence at the end of a chapter, oh, they meet Ralph Bretner. Yep. Ralph, he wears a feather in his hat. He's from Oklahoma. He's very important to the story. Hi, guys. <laughs> hey he knows how to work a cb radio that's his character yep (laughs) yeah i was i was looking at your show notes i was i was looking at your show notes and it's like oh they meet ralph and it's like i'm pretty sure there's more than that i I like got up to that point it's like nope they just meet ralph (laughs) yep it's kind of like how they just meet lucy swan like lucy swan is a very important (laughs) character for larry's for larry's arc right like lucy is you know just categorically a force for good in his life and she's just kind of an afterthought who is introduced, you know, as somebody for uh, for, for needing, needing to be jealous of. <laughs> yeah. He's so he's so folksy. Like, uh, I'm I'm folksy, Ralph. I'm the sheriff of getting us all to Boulder. <laughs> Hi, I'm the sheriff of getting us all to Boulder. I'm a get us to Boulder. <laughs> oh, that dates us. That dates us so much. <laughs> but it's good. I like it. Um, Ralph is another one of those characters who like didn't really thrive in the pre plague world, 
but eventually found his niche. Like he ends up being, you know, part of the Boulder Free Zone ad hoc committee. Like he he rises to a position of leadership because of his practicality. Whereas before everything happened, you know, he couldn't hold down a steady job because he would find himself, you know, clocking in late and clocking out early. Yeah, I just I, I don't know. I don't know why I'm a sucker for that part of the story, but I I just I just I am. <laughs> but they're all headed to Nebraska because the dreams are in are are in full effect. You know, they've been dreaming of this old woman who you know is rocking on this porch. You know, you know this this uh, this porch that's up on Jacks. You know, in the middle of these cornfields, and there's this dark force in the corn. And that woman is a 108 year old woman um, named Mother Abigail. Um, I mentioned that she is black because that is part of her history. There's an awful lot in her introduction about. You know, her family rising to prominence in, in, in Hemingford home, um, the town where they're at, uh, which is where, oh gosh, where Ben lives when he's an adult in it, um, strangely enough. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, but her family rose to prominence because they were the first African-American family to be uh, to be uh, induced into the Grange, right? And there's this early on scene where, you know, she... She, Mother Abigail, plays her guitar and, you know, does, you know, does a performance at the at the Grange Hall. And Randall Flagg, the man in black, is there, you know, turning people against her with racial epithets. You know, stuff that I don't really feel comfortable repeating on the show because, you know, even though it's not my words, it's not stuff I feel comfortable saying. Um, but just kind of yeah. hounding her from an early age. There's also this uncomfortable um, description, again, the reference, this Onion article about her describing... The number of husbands she's had and just the 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 ecstasy of someone coming inside you and the smell that rises up that's like the corn uh, and, the, and the number of great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren uh, it's um very strange to see that it is it, it feels it feels like an inappropriate level of detail <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey yep. but yep it, guys, it guys, sure she, she still makes her own bread yeah she still makes <laughs> just we, we, we'll, we'll just we'll just talk Talk top line. She's 106 years old. She still makes her own bread. That's yep. all you need to know about Mother Abigail. <laughs> That's all you know. That's how she introduces herself, too. And I still make my own biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, right? <laughs> Mother, Mother Ab- Abigail, Abigail's bread. <laughs> Abigail's biscuits. Um, oh, my gosh. The descriptions of the food that she makes. Because we, we meet her as she's, uh, you know, as she's making preparation. She knows that these people are coming. You know, she walks four miles, you know, at 108 to go to go get some chickens to fry up uh, for, 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 for the guests. Um, and, you know, the dark man shows up as weasels and takes some of the chickens out of the bags. Um, but, um, you know, as she is preparing this, thinking about all those people who are, you know, have, who have been eating canned food for, you know, at this point, three weeks coming to fresh homemade food. Um like my mouth waters in a way that Tolkien's descriptions of food never, never accomplish for me. And I just yeah. want to remind everybody that that I died in the no great loss chapter because of canned food. So this would have been really <laughs> nice if I could have showed up and had some of mother Abigail's food, but well, I died. I mean, to be fair, if you made your own biscuits, yeah, true. Yeah. You wouldn't. You wouldn't have to rely yeah. on the on the on the bloated botulism infected uh, Pillsbury biscuits. You know. <laughs> I, I, see, yeah. the, I picked the one food that actually the can can't bloat <laughs> because the very mechanism the very mechanism of a Pillsbury can of biscuits is that it pops open. 
So I can assure you that I would have died from a heart attack from it popping open in a like grocery that I was trying to loot food from. Like they'd all yeah. pop open at once, and Autumn would stroke out on the floor. <laughs> it's like that urban legend of the uh, the person who was driving their groceries home, and then they heard a they heard a loud pop, and then they you know they 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 felt up to reach the back of their head, and like oh my gosh, I feel soft stuff. You know my brain like some somebody shot me. You know, like my brains are leaking out. They go to the hospital and then say, yeah, you bought some. You, you you bought some biscuits and the can popped and you're 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 not holding your brains in you're holding the dough against your head. <laughs> That's me. I, I definitely heard that urban legend a long time before I read the stand. Uh huh. And uh, I I just remember thinking even as a little kid like why wouldn't why wouldn't you check. <laughs> because you're so terrified you got to hold your brain in you got to do yeah, the blood why... check though right you got to do the blood check uh-huh yeah am like, i bleeding that's, that's the thing that's the thing is like why would you go straight to the hospital before doing something like oh there's something like there, there, there's something wet on the back of my head let me see if it's anything that i should go to the hospital for. you don't you don't know if when you pull your hand away you're going to pull away the part of the brain that can recognize that the brain is outside the head <laughs> this is brain science 101 yeah <laughs> all right all right cole i'm not a brain scientist <laughs> well i mean quite frankly you're outmatched here then because i am oh man <laughs> i forgot <laughs> that's right podcaster and brain scientist um, <laughs> I, I look like a real idiot. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> so they arrive at Mother Abigail and they all take their chance to kind of have their audience. And this sets up a little bit of what her, uh, you know, downfall is, uh, which is pride. You know, she understands that she is acting for God, that she is assembling these forces against the dark man. You know, she has had her dreams about going to Boulder, even though nobody wants to get any closer to Vegas than they have to be. Um, in order to set up for their for their conflict, but she is just so happy to be in this to be in this position where she can serve these people, and you know that is its own kind of pride in her eyes, and we're going to see that you know come to fruition later on in, in 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 Boulder itself. So they head out. Ralph gets the CB, and you know as they are on the road, Mother Abigail dreams of a red eye opening and training on her in the night. And that is the end of what we're covering for the you know for for this for this episode. You know that is a lot of character introductions. That's an awful lot of you know talking about ways people have dealt with the plague. From this point onward, the story is relatively linear, uh, which is helpful from a discussion kind of standpoint because you know events proceed and rise to the climax and then reach the end. Um, but I was very happy to get to talk about these characters with you because you know like it you know like the Dark Tower, you know these characters loom large in my mind as human figures that I have a lot of affection for, even if I think they're despicable Harold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, f final thoughts from the two of you, uh, for, 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 from you, Autumn, you know, about this, uh, about this opening part of the stand where kind of the play clears everybody out. This is definitely the, the most fun part of the book when we are seeing these characters. And I mean, you, you do fall in love with almost all of them, even when they're repellent, you still want to keep like turning every single page and learning more about even how repellent they are. Uh, this half of the book is a little bit less. Uh, the action is getting everybody to one place. Uh, the second half of the book is what they do once they're there. And I, I, I guess it's also 
you'll really like the second half of the book if you like reading the minutes of town hall meetings. Yeah, I'm going to gloss over that quite a bit, actually, because I don't I'm not really that interested in talking about Stu being the first president of the the United States. (laughs) Let's ratify a constitution. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But um, it's just it's just a fantastic it's a fantastic book. I think about characters. I think about turns of phrase in here all the time. I mean, I think for a lot of people, M-O-O-N, if they've read this book, that spelling <laughs> something is in just their general, like they probably say it at least twice a year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, it's it's definitely an earworm kind of, kind of book. I, I've had a tweet in my drafts that begins M-O-O-N, that spells, and I keep changing the second sentence, but I, I want to make sure <laughs> that I save it for something worthwhile i've never been happy with the way i've concluded the joke um <laughs> so keep an eye out for that when i when i actually get you know get, get a hold of it but that that particular the way that that tom cullen character quirk pays off is so good absolutely <laughs> yeah but uh, but that that's how i feel about it um evan um yeah i i definitely think that this this first section of the book is a lot of fun and i i really enjoy um, kind of the the scattershot way that King introduces all the all of these characters and has their paths kind of gradually work towards each other. It feels very much um, very much like a, a a prototype for for things that he would attempt later with uh, with huge stories and lots of characters. Um, and I, I think that this might actually be my favorite instance of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was reading through it this time, I. I kept thinking back to a book that I haven't read since I was probably like maybe 10 or 11 years old uh, called The Girl Who Owned a City. I don't know if either of you have read that, um, but it's it's about it's about a, a virus like like it's it's basically another book about a super flu. It's basically the stand. OK, it's the stand um, again. For, yeah, uh, but it, it kills everyone in the world over the age of 12. OK. And, um, it's this, this girl and her younger brother who are just kind of trying to like figure out how to get by. And, uh, there's Lord of the fly style gang wars happening. And they're realizing that like, you know, oh, there's no adults manning the like power plants. And so the electricity is failing everywhere. And like, we have to figure out how to do all this stuff and there's no one who can show us. And it was written in like the mid seventies. So there's, it's not like they could just go on the internet. Right. Um, and, and I, I haven't thought about that book in a really long time and I, I kept kind of flashing back to it this time around and it, it really kind of makes me want to sit down and, uh, take, take a break from Stephen King and read some young adult literature. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Yeah. That definitely is a book cover from the seventies. Yeah. Written oh, yeah. by, written by O.T. Nelson. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the mayor of the flies. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, I, another thing that I noticed, and this isn't really like my, my overarching thoughts, but, um, Larry Underwood's hit song, uh, I noticed two other parallels that I hadn't before. Um, the first one is when you guys were talking is I realized that actually the perfect person to play Larry Underwood would be Bill Nighy reprising his role from love actually. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Um, 
but also I, I realized, well, there's a, a book that I really, really love called uh, Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits by David Wong, who um, most people know from Cracked. Okay. And it's uh, it, it's it's such a good book. But there's there's something that I realized reading through it this time that's totally a nod or reading through the stand this time. There's something in that book that's totally a nod to the stand, uh, which is there's this quote unquote hit song that keeps getting referenced in odd places and that people <laughs> express feelings ranging from confusion to annoyance toward, uh, <laughs> except, except instead of being called baby, can you dig your man? The song is called butt show parentheses and I don't charge <laughs> butt show and I don't charge. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another really good book that, uh, actually that's not like, that's kind of like the opposite of the stand in a weird sort of way that I could talk about that book for a really long time, but I won't. Um, yeah, stand is fantastic, even though there's no sword fights in it and, um, seven out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I feel like I've said an awful lot of what I, you know, have to say, like, I'm kind of done with post-apocalypse stuff anyway. I think that like between the stand and the road, like that's about as much as I want to, as I want to get, you know, that said, going back through this and, you know, I'm, I'm re you know, reading it through, through, through audiobook. Uh, this is the second time I've read it this summer. I guess it's still technically summer. No, it's, it's summer for one more day. Shit. Okay. Yeah. It was it was ninety three <laughs> degrees today. Do not okay, tell cool. me it's not summer. <laughs> there we go. I, I don't mean to get into semantics there, uh, but I but I did. Uh, no. Um. I, I I read it. You know, just a couple of months ago when I'm reading it again now to you know to to get back up to get back up to speed so I can talk about it. Um. It's it's still great. I'm noticing things that I that that I haven't noticed before. It is a big book, and you know that can turn a lot of people off. You know, of, of something like if you're coming to this from the uh, from the miniseries, like that is perfectly understandable because, you know, who who in there and, and who has time for a for a twelve hundred page book or a fourteen hundred page book? I get it. But like there is a lot there um, and a tremendous number of characters who you can really get to know because of how much it lays things out. Um, and, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about the rest of their journey. So thank you so much uh, to you two for sticking around. This episode was longer than usual. I really appreciate you taking the time um, and offering your insights on this. We'll be back in two weeks um, with another episode. I'm going to have a different uh, different panel uh, uh, assembled to talk about the remainder of the book. Um, probably going to do another, you know, kind of like abbreviated kind of version of this. Like every bullet point that I had in this in my notes here was like a chapter summary. Yeah, we covered 45 chapters of what we talked about here, which is <laughs> which is ab absurd. Um, but yes, we'll be back there. And then after that, we are resuming our Dark Dark Tower coverage with the with Wizard and Glass talking about the first chapter riddles. Um, very excited to do that. Wizard and Glass is such a fun book. I know I've said that every time it's come up, um, but we look forward to having you there. If you know now is a good time to tell your friends about the show to get them up to speed to tell them, hey, listen, listen to this. Um, we really appreciate it. Also, Patreon, you hear about all this at the beginning. Um, and thank you so much for listening. Um, I have been Cole Ross, uh, and also here with Autumn Greer and Evan Jones Thorne. Uh, where can people find you? Um, online. 
Um, you can find me online on Twitter at, at Mrs. Greer. That's M-I-S-S-U-S. Uh, if you'd like to hear me talk a little bit more about Stephen King, I was also recently on the Laser Discotech podcast where mm. Levi and Amelie uh, watch movies on Laserdisc. They recently watched uh, The Running Man, which was loosely based on a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. Um, what a and then I was. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also recently I was on the Going Digital Digimon podcast with um, Duck Feed Slack friends um, Davide, Sporky, and Garrett. Hmm. I need to I need to ask them if I can crash their party because that sounds like fun. It was it was an absolute blast. They are a delight. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Evan, how about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Harder. That's M-I-S-T-E-R. Uh, no no relation to Autumn's Twitter handle at all. That's it's... purely <laughs> coincidental. Uh, you can also find me on Mastodon, uh, except I created an account and I don't really know how it works and I'm never going to go there again. So probably don't waste your time looking for me. What the fuck is Mastodon? It's like Twitter, but worse. <laughs> Okie doke. Uh, instead of you, you don't tweet, you toot yeah. and it's open source and none of it makes any sense. Yeah. Um, Weird. so yeah, don't, don't look me up there, but <laughs> you can find me if you have to. Um, and yeah, I, I, un- unfortunately, uh, the very good serial reviews, Instagram has been dormant for, for a while, but, uh, I, I really would like to, to kind of get that going again. Yeah. So if, uh, if, if anybody has some really high quality serial submissions that they would like reviewed, please tweet them at me. Yeah. Uh, Please do. That is a very fun, very fun experiment that you did. And have we learned anything from the stand? Even the stuff that is dropped can be picked back up. Hopefully by the right hands. Uh, I've been Cole Ross. You can find me at Cole Ross on Twitter. That is K-O-L-E-R-O-S-S. Also on other shows on the network here. I'm also doing game streaming again, streaming horror games. That'll be of interest to folks who like Stephen King. Uh, uh, that is at twitch.tv slash duckfeedtv, and that is for my hex crank horror game coverage that I do. A little side project. Yeah, definitely that I've left. Definitely yeah. check that out too. Uh, Cole's horror game playthroughs are a lot of fun and uh, minimal screaming. Yeah. So if you're if you're a grown up. It's like YouTube that is for grownups. Yeah. <laughs> that can also be found at uh, youtube.com slash duckvtv. We've been going for a long time. Uh, let us cut this off and um, say the usual thing we say at the end here. Long days and pleasant nights. <laughs>